Hey guys. So, just a little bit of a warning here. Uh, you know, my notepad, it's omnipresent. You know, okay, so we've got first page, uh, second page, third page, fourth page, fifth page. I don't remember exactly, but this is the very least close for the most notes I've ever taken on a game before. A lot of these are little notes. Uh, as I was replaying this, I found myself thinking that this game would actually work better as a lore run, believe it or not. Because uh, there's so many things I just want to point out that add to the lore or the flavor or the setting or the story, the plot of characters or whatever. And it's just like, look there, isn't that amazing? And look there, isn't that amazing? But whatever, so I got myself a fresh canister I haven't even opened yet. There we go. Let's do this. So, Twilight Princess. I've decided, because I have five pages of notes, to not even talk about the making of behind-the-scenes stuff. Screw it! Let's just talk about the gameplay right off the bat. First of all, this is probably the single most combat-focused of the Zelda games, in my opinion. Huge, huge, huge emphasis on the combat side of things. A lot of the puzzle design, adventure design, exploration design is centered around uh, defeating enemies. And, of course, a lot of the enemies have uh, very tactics, very weak spots, very styles of play that you can use. Uh, you've got your different abilities that you can attack with. You've got the wolf form. You have tons of, diff of items. Uh, not the most items in a Zelda, but most of these items are deliberately t uh, can be used in combat. In fact, I think basically all of them can be, um, except for, like, bottles. <laughs> and there's it just the level of tactical applications in, in, the, in the live combat are huge and constant, and they're everywhere. And in addition to that, I feel like this is probably the most refined of the combat. Now, I know you're all going to hate me for this, because I love Twilight Princess. It's in my top 28 for a reason. But... I feel the combat, it just flows perfectly. Everything about it, the animations, the, the queuing of actions, the mobility that Link has, the locking on, the fact that it has chain locking on. For example, if you're holding lock on and you kill an enemy and there's another enemy right next to it, it'll shkunk sometimes, based on camera angle, shift straight over to the next one without you having to unlock and relock. You know, There's a lot of little things that make the combat just flow perfectly. Maybe that is just me. Because I've talked about this before, the idea of the Tetris thing, right? So what works for me may not necessarily work for you. Um, but for me, the combat just flows perfectly. I don't even have to think about it. It's just... Ah, bam. This is one of the very, very, very few games, I would say, that I am genuinely good at. It's one of the reasons I keep considering picking it up for speedrunning. Because all I need to know is the tricks. I already know most of the game uh, pretty well. Um, I like the fact that the wolf form adds very distinct, very disparate, uh, dis different uh, combat and movement and playstyle in general. It, it basically feels like playing a completely separate character, uh, which is good, which is awesome, which really adds to... Uh, first of all, early on, it enables them in terms of design to make it so in certain areas you can only go here or here because you're a wolf, and you can only go here or here because you're human. Once you have the ability to switch between both, your world really opens up. That's actually the freedom point when you get the ability to switch back and forth. You can teleport at will, you've got Epona, you've got all the tools necessary to get around. You can go basically wherever at that point. 
and do tons of optional stuff, and there's lots of exploration in this game, too. There are a huge number of side quests and optional mini-games and caves that you can go exploring and rocks you can blow up and little nooks and crannies, and virtually all of them have at least some reward. Uh, oftentimes that reward is something simple, like rupees or a heart piece, but nevertheless, you're, you're encouraged to go explore. This is also probably in my opinion, the largest Zelda in terms of sheer uh, terrain size. But, well, of course, you're going to look at me and say, well, that's stupid. Wind Waker's largest. Let me explain what I mean a little bit. Well, Wind Waker had a lot to do on the ocean, and that's a good thing. Uh, it, it made it so the ocean segments were, you know, fun. Nevertheless, I feel that while Wind Waker is clearly larger, Twilight Princess is denser if that makes any sense. So I suppose this is the densest of the large Zeldas. You know, there's a fairly large amount of terrain you can explore. Most of it has some purpose. Most of it is used for something. Even if it's not used for something initially, later on something will come by. They do a lot of reuse of certain larger areas of terrain uh, and, and, and geography to good use for quests, for, for optional things, for cutscenes. They do some really good stuff with that. Um, there's the... Uh, Oh my gosh, there's the, there's the Twilight Effect, uh, which I, is probably, I'd say, my biggest complaint about this game. Not the visual effect. The visual effect's brilliant. The little uh, pixelated thing that looks artificial, almost digital, in a way that just... It, and you're like, well, why digital? Well, the entire point of that is to make it look that it is the antithesis of the light realm, which is very natural. If you look at the light spirits, their overall visual design is very natural, very morphic, uh, a little bit too morphic, a little bit too anime, if I'm being blunt. Um... So not quite my thing on that one. But nevertheless, you can get that feeling of, for lack of a better way to explain this, the Zerg from everything in the Light World, and you get the feeling from, in from the Protoss for everything in the Twilight Realm to emphasize, just to visually distinguish the two things completely from each other. And to make it so one, when one is in the other, it contrasts. It, it creates that harshness, which is great. I love that. Um, the thing I don't like, that negative I mentioned, is the music. Now, I know a lot of you are going to hate me for this, because Twilight Princess's music tends to be well-received from what I've seen, but... And, and, and there are some songs in this game that are great. I love Medina's theme. I love the Hidden Village theme. Um, I love the song that plays in uh, Snowhead, or Snow Peak. The, 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 the snowy mansion fortress thing we'll talk about later. Um, I love several of the boss fights. The boss fight against Blizzetta that I, that I just kind of referenced. Um... I love a lot of the music in this game. And then there's the rest of the music, which is very atmospheric, uh, very ambient. Whenever you're in the Twilight Realm for the first three sections of the game, when you're freeing an area from the Twilight Realm, maybe it's just because the fact that I was kind of fighting off the flu while this was happening, this is true, uh, and the fact that I'm a little tense and stressed and, and straining myself, um, but it was literally making me a bit queasy playing through some of those sections. And the weird thing is that is simultaneously praise and, and, and a derogatory statement. The praise is obvious. The sound design and the visual design on display is amazing. The entire point is to demonstrate just how screwed up and, and, and wrong and off that everything is as a result of being in the Twilight Realm. And it is completely contrasted visually and audibly when you free these places from the Twilight Realm. The regular songs play, sound effects play normally, the colors go back to actually being real colors, you know, the Twilight shards go away, etc., etc., so it's great design, it's just, you know, from the reality perspective, I'm looking at that like... Uh, uh, there was a dungeon, uh, Arbiter's Grounds, 
uh, which I ended up actually, no, 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 not, Ar I'm, I'm sorry, wrong thing, wrong thing. Um, I like Arbiter's Grounds soundtrack. Uh, the final Twilight section, where you do it on the lake and up the river and the frozen Zoras, that whole thing. Um, it was getting to me so badly, I muted the game and pulled out my iPod and plugged in uh, Link to the Past <laughs> music and just started listening to that for a bit. Um, funny anecdote, Link to the Past music fits Twilight Princess disturbingly well. I would love to see some kind of like a fan hack which replaces the music, um, even though I, I actually understand just how difficult and insane that would be to do. But, you know, whatever. If you ever want to do it yourself, just play Twilight Princess on mute with some LTTP music. You'll see what I mean. <laughs> so, yeah, Dark World music for that kind of thing. You know, dungeon music, it was great. Um, but so that's pretty much my biggest complaint about this game right there. Uh, the other complaint I have is the light gathering game in the Twilight Sequences. In hindsight, having replayed this with full analysis mode on, I think the only reason the light gathering game bothers me is because of the bugs. You guys know I don't like insects. And because of the aforementioned effects going on. There's nothing necessarily wrong with the light gathering game. At least not on the face of it. Um, so I don't think I can really lace that as an actual complaint anymore. Not like I used to. Uh, the the big light bug thing that you end up fighting is, is really, really gross. And the fact that you're fighting it with your teeth is just really, really gross. And I didn't need to think about that. <laughs> um, so the... So yeah, there's the music. I already mentioned that. Um, the teleporting around thing is great. This might be the only Zelda game with this much freedom of movement. Uh, LTTP was a relatively small world, so it felt like you had a lot of freedom of movement, but you ultimately didn't. You had uh, the dash, which I can't even think of the name of off the time, Pegasus Dash, and you had the whistle to get the bird around in the light world, and that was kind of it. You could Now, you can get to wherever you wanted to go within a couple of minutes if you know where you're going, because it's LTTP, again, small world. But ultimately, your actual options of, of operating for, for travel were relatively limited. This is true in most Zeldas. Uh, Wind Waker HD did a good thing by adding that, that sail I mentioned to help you get going. So you have a lot of agency there, but you still don't really have that much variety. You've got that, and you've got the tornado teleport thing, and that's it. In Twilight Princess, you have Epona who is great for getting around the overworld. Uh, Wolf Link, if you don't feel like summoning her, who is actually relatively fast on his own right. Uh, your own mobility, of course, which I'm only mentioning for completion's sake. And the freaking teleports, which, especially once you get the ability to just teleport around, are virtually everywhere and allow you very quick access to basically any part of the game. It really helps when you have a world this large and this dense to have the ability to go here and here and here. Bam, just like that. That is amazing game design. Very well thought out, and of course ties into the lore, which brings me to my first lore point here. Those teleport spots kind of look like they're made of the shadow beasts we defeat, aren't they? Well, as we find out, those shadow beasts are actually people, either Twilight or otherwise, who have been converted into those shadow beasts by the magic of Din. So, any anyone wondering if those portals reverted to that naturally? Because that doesn't strike me as likely. I think it is more likely that those people turned into those portals either as a way of de definitively helping, they were trying to help us out, or they were crafted into those portals, possibly by Midna herself. Oh, that reminds me, I pronounce it Midna. I'm sorry to everyone, except I'm totally not, because I'm not changing my mind. I have been calling her Midna since this game came out. I'm going to keep doing it.
Sorry, guys. I am also not the only person I know who automatically saw that name and thought Midna. So, yes, I know, Midna. I, I don't care. You're, you're going to be hearing it, Midna, this whole time, okay? So just get used to that. Um, that I give you the warning there. So, uh, one of the questions I get a lot is, you know, what's your favorite Zelda boss? What's your favorite Zelda dungeon? I decided for the first time, since I haven't replayed Twilight Princess in, like, a year. Yeah, I know, right? Um, but on analysis mode, it's like, okay, well, what is my favorite dungeon? What's my favorite boss? What's my favorite item? The three questions I get most. My favorite dungeon? I'm really torn on that, actually, because on analysis mode, there's two that I think really shine. But the one that really crawls above the others, I think, is going to be the Snow Peak Mansion Mountain Peak Fortress thing. Uh, the one where the Yetis are. Uh, that is an amazing dungeon for reasons I'll talk, I'll talk about later. Favorite boss? Well, normally I'd just say Zant. But Zant's kind of cheating because he's not quite, you know, a standard boss. So my backup option is Blizzetta, who I forgot how incredibly fun and awesome that fight is. Uh, it, it rewards quick reflexes, it rewards paying attention, it's got a unique gimmick to it, it uses the item of the dungeon in a, in a fun way, and it's got great music, and it's wonderfully creepy. Um, favorite item is actually funny, because this is a tie between two items who are fully gimmicky, but their gimmicks are awesome. The spinner, which is just fun, and the rod of domination, which is just fun. It's a shame that both of them basically get no use out of their given dungeons, but eh. Okay, and then, so we're going to skip off the set page, because this is the stuff that's supposed to go at the end here. <laughs> let's move on here. So, um, let's talk about the Triforce. So, there, are uh, unlike virtually every other Zelda game other than Majora's Mask, there's a lot of similarities between this game and Majora's Mask, uh, there are a huge number of unanswered questions in this game and in Majora's Mask. There's a lot of room for speculation, a lot of room for interpretation. A lot of what you're going to hear is my own interpretation as usual. Uh, I actually did some research on uh, several lore theory crafting forums I know, specifically for Zelda, where I had been also reading about some Majora's Mask stuff and some Ocarina stuff and so forth and so on. Um, and I read a bunch of it and it's like, oh wow, people have really been taking this in a lot of different directions. So feel free as ever to share your own thoughts, your own theories, as long as you do so in a polite manner. If you decide to be a screaming chorus, I'll just ignore you, blah, blah, blah. Boilerplate. Moving on, the Triforce. Why is the Triforce even in this game? Now, I know what you're going to say, what do you mean? Or you're going to say the Triforce barely is in this game. I mean, effectively, the Triforce is important to the game. It prevents Link from being converted. It prevents Zelda from being converted. And it ensures Ganondorf can do all the events he does. Other than that, the Triforce has no actual function in this game. But it had to be there for those three things to happen. It's actually a significant plot point in all three cases that the Triforce basically bypasses everything else. All the other rules, all the other powers, all the other setups, all of that pales in comparison to the Triforce pieces. And that makes sense for a setting like The Legend of Zelda. So, why is the Triforce here? Well, you're, you're probably looking at me like, that's stupid, it's here because... No, I mean, why do they have the pieces? Why does the Triforce split up into pieces? Because it is accessed by someone who does not have a strong hun of heart to actually embody all three elements. Therefore, each element goes out and seeks out the person with the strongest aspect that it is for. Courage, wisdom, power. We've seen this in basically every other Zelda game. Problem. This game happens before Ganondorf ever entered the Sacred Realm. This, ga this game happens basically at the beginning of Ocarina of Time, for all intents and purposes. You know what I mean. This timeline started there. So there was no accessing the Triforce. Now, uh, one of the most interesting theories I'd like to share with you 
uh, is the theory that the Triforce was split when the time split happened. Uh, the way it was described, now I don't describe to this theory personally. I have my own theory, which I'm actually saving for the very end of this video. I hope you'll stay with me for all of that. Um, but the theory that was postulated was, imagine like, here's the, the, you know, the present and here's the past, and there's the line between them, right? Well, when someone passes through these two, there is a point in time, haha, where they're halfway in between, right? Ergo, there was a point in time where the Triforce of Courage in Link was in the present timeline at the end of Ocarina and in the past new timeline created by Zelda's mistake, right? Ergo, because the Triforce was split, that explains both sides of the equation. Why the Triforce of Courage was shattered for the events leading unto Wind Waker and for why the Triforce of Courage was out at all, therefore causing power and wisdom to be sent out as well in Twilight Princess. Make sense? There's a lot of logic behind that, and I agree with it. It's, it's a fascinating theory, uh, and it does explain both sides of the coin. Uh, like I said, I have my own theory, which we'll get to. Um, there's another one. Hang on just a second. I've got to barely read my own notes here. There's another theory that I read about. Here it is. That, uh, whoop, there we go. <laughs> um, the... It basically throws out the rules of the Triforce as we have them established and says that the Triforce can logically manifest. Anybody who's actually seen me stream this game knows I've mentioned this very theory since I, I adhered to it myself until I replayed this game with analysis mode on. Um, the idea is, yes, there's the Triforce, but since nobody is going after it, nobody's trying to reach it, it will naturally manifest its pieces within people who embody it naturally. In other words, it's not like, it, it, to put it into such terms, Link was not given courage and superhuman abilities because he had the Triforce of Courage. Link did all these courageous things and all these brave things and pushed himself to the limits of the bell curve of what he could accomplish, and that made the Triforce of Courage seek him out. Make sense? And thus, this would also explain how Ganondorf gets his and how Zelda gets hers. Um... And so that would explain. That would also explain one other thing, since if you remember, uh, Ganondorf very clearly and distinctly did not have the Triforce of Power prior to his execution. Uh, I think I'm going to save those thoughts for later, though. I'm pretty sure I have notes about that later. So let's let's move on. Um, so the game has a very slow start. Uh, I have streamed this game before, and I've spent like 10 minutes just showcasing all the details at the beginning of the game because there are lots of them. There's lots of little attention to doodads, paintings and pictures on the wall, and chunks just everywhere really trying to make the start of the game really feel fleshed out and whole. Now, they do this throughout the whole game. Visual storytelling is top-notch in this game, um, and I'll talk more about that later. But as you're going through the intro of the game, there's no denying it is a very slow start. Um... Similar to Kingdom Hearts 2, similar to Final Fantasy 7. It takes a while to get going. It's the slow burn. I mention this because whether you like this or not is, is preference. You know, there's no right or wrong when it comes to this kind of a thing. So be warned, as they say. Now, if you know what you're doing, you can just basically bypass the intro and be like, get the, get the slingshot. Okay, run over here. And okay, now go through the wolf section. And we're back. You know, and, and just race through the intro. Uh, you can spend easily about an hour and a half or so on the intro if you feel like it, which may not sound like a lot of time, but keep in mind, basically all of that is just, here's life. Here's everyday living in the Ordona province. Which is made all the more eerie when you think about it, because by the time in which the game has started, it's pretty likely the conquest of Hyrule has already begun. 
because you know time, i mean in in lore it's not supposed to take a few minutes to go from from ordona the outskirt province which is an entire province to hyrule castle so the idea is that you, know, you get the idea it's that usual you know snes rpg effect that i keep referring to um i also like uh there's a bit of a living world feeling to Twilight Princess, but it's different than Wind Waker, and it's different from other games that I've mentioned that have this kind of a thing. Uh, Twilight Princess feels a little bit more like... like a village. And I know this is a weird thing, but Twilight Princess actually has a very strong element of the SNES RPG factor, with, like, the sole exception of Hyrule Castle Town, which, which has tons and tons of people, which is awesome, really helps flesh it out and make it feel like it's a city rather than just a village. But most of the game feels small, and yet that smallness is very fleshed out. We get tons of characterization for tons of different NPCs. We have lots of cutscenes, lots of different personalities, lots of little voice acting clips to help flesh them out. Um, different cosmetic design, different terrain design, different architectural design, all of which helps flesh out so that each village, each of the little huts or, or thorps or whatever you want to call them, feels like a living, breathing area. It's just small. So it's not quite to the extent of, say, Final Fantasy IX, but it's still got that same flavor to it, which I really like. It's, it's a unique flavor, distinct from, say, Wind Waker, uh, which is a little bit different for that. Um, I now have to respond to a, a message here. So I'm going to do that. Sorry, guys. Now, um, I also like the idea of the specialization concept, a.k.a. you have people who are their whole family is generated around the idea of running the watermill. There's one family whose whole purpose is weaving with baskets and, and, and cloth and whatnot. There's one family who works the shop. There's one family who works the rams, etc. That, again, makes sense with that small perspective. And, by the way, also ties into my grand unified theory thing. Uh, that I'll be mentioning at the end of this video. Yes, I, this is another Zelda I have a big theory at the end for. But this makes sense. And the reason why it makes sense, and I'll give you the piece now so you can carry it in the back of your mind for later, is this is a world that hasn't really developed yet. This is a small world. A world where being able to visit the nearby town is a big deal. You know, early medieval, very low-tech, low-bronze, that kind of a thing. Now, I know you're going to be like, well, there's tons of examples of higher-tech and magic. That's not what I mean. The overall implication and feel of the world is very wilderness, very frontier. You know, we're still in the early stages of really setting up a civilization, a culture. Which is funny, given how far in, in the timeline Twilight Princess is. But again, this ties in. Um... The other interesting thing about of this world, and it, again, shares the similarity with Wind Waker, one of the things I talked about in Wind Waker was how everyone was reliant on the hero of time to come and save them, and he wasn't there, and nothing happened. And they all got screwed because of it. It wasn't until Wind Waker that people were willing to actually stand up and do things for themselves, and even then, that's not always true. It was just people were starting to be able to, to stand up for themselves, work for themselves, do things for themselves, etc., rather than waiting on, Oh, please, yon hero saveth me. And, and give me money, you know. Um, this feels a very similar way. In fact, it's actually kind of a plot point, the fact that Link and the Resistance are basically it, as far as people who are willing to actually go out and do things. The guards of Hyrule are quite literally made into a joke. 
It's actually hard for me to laugh at them, though, because they are presented as sniveling cowards. People, and I don't mean that as an insult. I mean, the first few scenes as you're going through Hyrule Castle as a wolf, and they're dead, or, you know what I mean, spirit, spirit energy. Um, and they're, they're just, they're, you get the feeling of terror. The, the ambiance of terror is just pervasive throughout the whole of those scenes, as those guys are literally shaking absolutely terrified and will probably be so forever due to the nature of what's going on un unless we save them. Nobody can take care of themselves except for the a few, uh, an elect few. It is no uh, coincidence, I think, that each member of the resistance hails from one of the major areas, regions, or cultures of the world, or at least of, of the overall Hyrule area. And of course there's Link, who arguably is probably this way because of the way he was raised by his elder brother figure. He's, 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 his parents are gone, but Russell is the one who's basically been raising him. He's not actually his father, by the way. I know that's a thing that's mentioned. So that's not his father. Um, You're not my father! Um, Loki vibes. Oh, God, Loki as Link. Anyways, they both got green. So... Uh, so yeah, everyone is still reliant on someone else to do the job for them, you know. Everyone is willing to just complain and whine and moan and uh, when, when the water problem happens uh, in Hyrule, when, when the Zoras find out things are wrong, they don't know what to do. When, when uh, the, the Gorons have a problem at home, they, they refuse to send for help and they, they can't do anything about it themselves, so they're content to just lock themselves up and sit in their box and say, Go away, I live, I'm, I'm not here. You know, it's... it's <laughs> Everyone in this game is just putting a box around themselves and wrapping themselves in the covers and saying, nope, can't deal with it, can't deal with it. And like I said, only the elite few, the Resistance and Link, uh, are actually willing to stand up and do something about it. The uh, other funny factor of this is I would say that both Zelda and Midna are also unwilling to do anything, at least until they go through the course of the game, and that's part of their character growth. By the way, one of the jokes that I saw in one of the theory crafting forums was this game should have been named Legend of Midna. Or, you know, Twilight Midna or something. Because for all intents and purposes, well, Link is certainly a major character in this game. Uh, this is her game. This, this is all about her. This is all focused on her. This is all uh, getting down to her development, her characterization, her arc. She does have, actually, she has two character arcs throughout the course of this game. That's pretty awesome. Um, so anyways, moving on. So then we have uh, Ilya. Now, I know this is going to sound incredibly controversial, but I don't think there's really that much of a romantic connection between Ilya and Link. Uh, I know that is the most common uh, shipping of these two uh, of characters in this, other than Mina, of course. Uh, I think it is far more likely that the two of them are very close friends, who have been friends since childhood. In fact, the concept of a childhood friend being applied literally too often in fiction and in real life, a childhood friend is just, yeah, I've known you since childhood, but we act like we're buddies. No, a childhood friend is someone who you're willing to go to bat for. A childhood friend is someone you are willing to do something insane or crazy just to take care of them. A childhood friend is someone who, you get my point. In other words, a real friend, as I would define it. And I think that that explains the nature of the two's relationship. They are both very close. But I never got that romantic tint from it. Now, it's just me. Um, now, one scene that could have proven me wrong, forgive me for skipping ahead, is the scene where we restore her memory and we're like, Hey, Ilya, and she's like, hey, and uh, nothing happens. They even portray it like everyone's like, oh my god, I remember you. And the Gorons just quietly leave. And the kids are all like peeking through the window and they're all yanked away. But nothing happens. They don't even hug. That would have clearly and distinctly shown the affection 
uh, that that could be there, but again, nothing happened, so I don't think anything is there. Follow me. Next point, uh, the kids. I like the fact that we start off with these kids. Again, this helps uh, with the slow burn thing. If anything, I know this is kind of a controversial opinion, but I actually wish the intro was longer, that we had more time with the day-to-day -day mundanity while weaving game tutorial into the uh, everyday of, uh, effects of life so that you got to know these kids more. Because one of the primary motivations of the entire first half of the game is finding Ilya and Colin and Malin and... and Mallow, excuse me, um, and, and, and all the thir other 13 dwarves. <laughs> but seriously, finding them, saving them, making sure they're okay, taking care of them, protecting them. There are several issues that they go through uh, pretty much up until the, the midway point of the game. Um, and while the game does take its, take its time to try and establish these characters so you give a damn about them, I, I just wish it did it a little bit more. Um, so here's a question. Uh, the Bacoblins show up. What are they doing there? Now, the Bacoblins' motivations are never really laid out in any sense of the word. Um, I, I find myself just speculating on this endlessly. I have nothing to speculate with. I have literally just a blank sheet of paper. So I can't actually give you any theories, because any theories I would have would be, would be pure fantasy, uh, pure speculative. But... I find it interesting that they specifically go there to kidnap people, kidnap kids in this case. They're like, yep, we're taking them. Why? Why do this? Why, what possible motive could there be for that? Now, later on, there's a motive when the, the, the King Bulbin actually takes Colin, puts him up on the spear, and is like, come on, bring it. You could tell what he was doing. He was specifically daring them, daring Link, to come and fight him. To come and you know to, to give him the fight he wanted, you could tell there's that you know test of strength, enjoying the combat kind of a thing within the Bacoblin uh, culture, if you can call it that. But that's all I got. Now, I mean, so you could extend that and say that the entire reason they went specifically to kidnap children was to encourage the people of this province to come after them. But even that is kind of silly, since don't forget the Bacoblins are actually there on the behest of Zant and the Twilight Empire, or whatever you want to call it. So. The entire goal of the Twilight, then, is to slowly encroach the Twilight until it encompasses them and they win. So, yeah, there is actually an answer to this, believe it or not. Uh, the answer is, well, it's a twofold. Number one, the, the Coblins, like I said, were just provoking. You know, come on, fight me. Oh, you don't want to fight me? Okay, I'll, I'll kill this guy. Now will you fight me? You know, a uh, ruthlessly logical mindset, if you think about it. The other thing is that Zant's an idiot. <laughs> I'll be talking more about him later. Seriously, no tactics at all. So, um, blah, 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 blah. Now, the one thing I do wonder is why did they leave Link? You know, they're here to capture the kids. You know, why leave Link? Uh, I have actually, I, I shouldn't have even said that because I've already answered my own question. If they were here to provoke people, they need to let people know that they've taken them. So they take the kids, leave the eldest, and say, bye. We'll be over there if you want to fight. Bye. And that leads to, uh, the way things go. Um, I have a few notes here about, you know, maybe the kids were being taken for food. Maybe they're be being taken to be turned into new bacoblins. But as I'm saying it out loud here, <laughs> live theory crafting here, I think, I think the, the taunting and the provoking thing is the most likely. So Mina takes an interest in Link pretty much immediately. Uh, that's actually explained later, the idea that they have their own legend about the Divine Beast, a.k.a. the wolf form that Link goes into. And uh, 
that makes a sense, of course. Um, it is worth noting that he, at the very beginning of the game, basically, is not converted into a shadow beast or a spirit form uh, by going into the Twilight Realm. He's basically fine. He just gets converted into an, uh, an approximation by partial, partial shielding. In other words, he didn't actually have the Triforce of Courage yet, but he was already marked by it. I mention this because this is important. It means that either the Triforce of Courage had already said, yep, he's going to be the one, or he's actually of the bloodline of the hero of Ocarina. Now, you're look, probably looking at me weird when I say that. The point is, there are two possible interpretations of the bloodline thing, which I'm going to go and discuss right now. One, you actually are a descendant of Link, the one from Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask. Very possible. Um, I have heard a unfortunate amount of theory crafting on who Link actually had children with, because we are pretty damn sure it was not Zelda. There's no royal bloodline there. So he went off with someone else, and clearly it was Ruto. I mean, just, duh. Um, actually, there's a surprising amount of evidence that that's actually true. I'm not kidding. But regardless, so that's the first thing, that you are literally of the bloodline of the hero of destiny. Uh, this is something that was true in LTTP as well, uh, for example. The, the bloodline thing has been a thing in several Zeldas. The other possibility is you are metaphorically of the bloodline. You are someone who is of, you know... A, uh, you are considered worthy, you know, you're considered the kind of person who would be my child, you're not, you know, there's no blood connection between you and me, but for all intents and purposes, you are my son, that kind of a connection, you know, like I said, metaphorical, uh, both of these are valid, I don't know which one is true, but again, I mentioned that Triforce thing already protecting him thing, because that is valid for, for discussing that point. If he was of the bloodline, it would make sense that the Triforce of Courage would kind of be through that bloodline, in that bloodline, in a similar way to the essence of Hylia or Hylia or Halia or whatever the hell you want to say it is, uh, is, in the, is in the bloodline of the Zeldas, which leads to their innate magical ability, because duh, right? Or, of course, it could just be the Triforce marked him and he had no blood connection to the Ocarina link at all. Um, so... Given what we find out later, uh, I find myself wondering how much of Midna's uh, impish nature, for lack of a better term, is a mask, and how much of it is, is her just how she's been uh, up until. You guys know me. I've said many, many times that, uh, especially in works of fiction, but also true in real life, okay, we're still good, um, that, you know, there's not really a... I mean, people can change, but I always... I, I, it depends on the setting. It depends on the writers as to whether or not someone can actually fundamentally go from person A to person Z, or if someone can, you know, was always inclined to person Z and therefore was just changed by circumstances or upbringing or whatever to be person Z and blah, blah, blah. There's, there's a huge debate here, which I really don't want to go into. But I bring it up because... Don't forget, at the point at which in the early part of the game, Mina is furious. She's interested in revenge, and basically that's it. She is just here to screw over Zant and try to get her world back. And over the course of the game, she grows to care about us, about the people we care about. She sees the way we interact with each other. She gets the Morden perspective, favored nephew. In other words, it's easy to look at the light world and just basically see them as their enemy, because they were, technically. Um... It's a lot harder to see Colin and Link and and Renato and, and Telma and say, you're my enemy, because they're not. And, uh, and of course, Link and, and Zelda both go out of their way quite a bit, specifically to help me just because they care. Uh, 
So, again, either they actually change her character's perspective, or they just soften the shell and slowly melt the mask away until we see the real Midna underneath that. That being said, we don't really know a lot about the real Midna before these events. We can only speculate. A lot of the information we get on that comes from Zant, and he is an incredibly unreliable person for that information. But I want to save my discussions on him for later. Oh, um, the atmosphere of terror. I mentioned this again. Of course, the guards are useless. Again. This is actually the second time the guards have been useless. Um, I wanted to compare and contrast the atmospheric differences between this game and Majora's Mask. Uh, in Majora's Mask, the feeling was always of... There's, a, there's actually a, a, a phrase which was said by Yahtzee on Zero Punctuation of All Things, but it's really after it. A giant weight of whale blubber that is just sitting on you. And it's unpleasant, it stinks, and it's heavy, and it's oppressive, and it is literally always pressing you down. And it's this feeling of dread, this feeling of knowing the inevitable is coming, that hopelessness, that despair. Um, and again, Majora's Mask beautifully did this by literally making it so basically everywhere you are in the world, you can always see that moon, and it's always coming down. You always know, you can't escape the fact that you are doomed. By contrast, Twilight Princess goes, well, it certainly has a, a different variety of creepy, and I'll be talking more about the, the ways it approaches the creepy factor in several ways. Um, it feels much more like abject fear, like the actual presence of being threatened. There's a, there's a difference between, you know, the, the vague, looming dread of something that's going to happen on the horizon and something immediate and present, which is staring you in the face. If I can use a parallel, this is going to sound like a weird parallel, but bear me out. Let's say you live in Topeka, Kansas. I know that sounds like a weird place to point out, but I'm going somewhere with this. And let's say it's the Cold War. Yeah, you probably already know where I'm going with this. And let's say the nukes have launched. Well, you're right next to, I forget the name of it, there's an Air Force base right around there, which is a nuke target. It is one of the places that the Soviet Union would probably nuke. So you're living there, okay? And the nukes have fired, your nukes have fired. So there are two possibilities of what just happened. Either they fired first and you just got your birds off the air, or you fired first and they're going to retaliate before they get struck. Either way, there are nukes coming and there is no possibility of getting out in time. And yet while you're waiting, everything's totally normal. Everything's peaceful and quiet. And that's the kind of thing that can completely break a mind, can completely sever any concept of reality or sanity as the, surre the surreality of your situation just looms on the horizon. You know it's coming and there's nothing you can do about it. You're just waiting. And at any given second, you could see that flash and know that your life and the life of everyone around you has ended. That your lives are ending. Never mind the fact that you're being killed. Your way of life is about to be destroyed. And there's a horrible dread in that sort of a feeling. By contrast, Twilight Princess is more like... I don't have a good analogy for that one. <laughs> You're being chased by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. You know, there's a different type of fear to it. That's not quite it. That's more adrenaline than fear. But the point is, the fear aspect, the terror aspect, is much more omnipresent. Omnipres omnipresent. 
in Twilight Princess. There's constant, it's everywhere in the whole thing. People being afraid of what's going to happen to their kids, what's afraid of going to happen to their province, what's going to happen to their country, what's going to happen to themselves, what's going to happen to their friends, what's going to happen to their terrain, what's going to happen to their shop. It's like, oh God, and there's always something present right there that they can see that's threatening them or threatening theirs or threatening whatever. And they're still powerless to do it, but it's much more right there, right in the moment. It's like, I guess the, the correct, correct analogy is if you could literally look up and see the missiles coming down. And they're, they're about to land and there's nothing you can do about it. But the feeling is completely different because it's right there. That's how Twilight Princess comes across to me overall. I also uh, find a couple of things interesting here. First of all, uh, there is a singular throne in the cutscene where we see the, uh, you know, the, the fall, the, the conquest of Hyrule. Um, I find that interesting. Uh, ancillary works have confirmed that Princess Zelda was literally a few days away from becoming Queen Zelda and being the new leader of the kingdom. Uh, and obviously she will be in, in, the, in the future after this game ends. Um, I mention that, though, because the implication is made subtly that this world is on a decline. I want to talk more about that a little bit later, but the fact that there's a single successor and a single line of succession happening in a, in a kingdom with such just pathetic guards, let's just say that says volumes about how far down the kingdom of Hyrule has fallen. I mean, for God's sakes, an entire province was going to gift the kingdom a sword as 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 tribute. That vassal kingdom, that vassal province, was going to give them a sword. Think about that for a minute. That actually says a lot. Now, I know what you're going to say. I know, I know what you're about to say. Arsh, you are reading way too much into this. To which I say, no, I'm not. This is a Zelda game. I know exactly how much effort and time and work and thought is put into by the developers in order to add these little bits of flavor and detail to flush out the world. They've been doing this since LTTP. I've seen the interviews. I've read the interviews. These people have been wanting to tell bigger stories and have been hampered and limited by by time, by money, and by technology. And one of the best ways to do that kind of stuff is to put little details, like a lot of visual storytelling. And trust me, if there's anything that Twilight Princess excels at, it is visual storytelling. Speaking of which, so Zant shows up, and he's got that cold, malevolent Darth Vader presence. Oh, surrender all die. I have a very specific voice for whenever I voice act Zant. Uh, and it, it try, it's, I don't want to say too much because I want to talk about Xant later, but let's just say that it's pretty relevant. Um, hang on just a second, I need to make a message. Uh, I'm sorry for the delay here, guys. Um... I like that Midna insists on Link being called a servant. She specifically yokes him for all intents and purposes. And it, on the one hand, you may look at that and think that that speaks to elitism, that speaks to arrogance, that speaks to the aristocratic, I am, you know, you, you all observe me because I am an aristocrat. I don't think that's actually what's being happening here, though, personally. I think that is very de demonstrably showing her a lack of trust. Uh, I think it's showcasing the fact that she probably doesn't trust us for three separate reasons, actually. Number one, because she's probably never had someone like a close friend probably in her life. Uh, number two, because we're from the light world. And again, pretty much up until the events of the game, so in other words, after the scene where she calls her servant and starts ordering and bossing him around, 
the light world are her enemies, the enemies of her people, or however you want to think of that. And of course, the third reason is she was very recently betrayed and quite literally cast down from being the Queen of Twilight. So, all relevant there. Um, now, speaking of which, though, I will say this. It's pretty clear fairly early on, from interacting with Zelda and interacting with Link, you get the impression that she starts to waver. The kind of hot rage necessary to do drastic and extreme things and very terrible evil acts, it, that's the kind of thing that doesn't last. And the longer you spend cooling off, the more you start to think, eh. And so Midna's own, by Midna's own uh, admittance, she was willing to use Link, to manipulate him as a pawn for her system. And by the time she gets back to uh, or the Odona province, the village, it's like, uh, you can already tell that, because some time has passed, and, you know, Hyrule's been conquered, he's been passed out, they did a couple of adventures together, you know. At this point in time, she's already starting to have second thoughts. And I mention this because she asks for a sword and shield. And yet, I get the extremely strong impression she had zero intention to use either. First of all, every time she actually doesn't combat in the rest of the game, including when she's got, you know, she actually fights, at no point in time does she use any tools other than the magic. She is very much a mage archetype. So why bother asking for a sword and shield? Except we already know the answer to that, don't we? The idea was to have them for him. Now you might argue, well, she couldn't have known that he'd be restored. No, but she could hope it. My point is that it is my theory that she never wanted the sword and shield for herself. She wanted it for him. But again, because of the trust issues and because of the, the problems she's having, uh, she couldn't just outright say, we need to get you equipped so you can help me. She had to be like, oh, let's get me a thing. And oh, these are terrible. You can hold on to them. Just in case, you know. As a nice thing, I like when she wears the mask thing. That's, that's a nice touch. Um, I do think it's interesting uh, how... The animals get converted by being in the Twilight Realm, and people generally don't. See, the thing is, I have a note here that says, or do they? Dun-dun-dun. Yes, I wrote down the dun-dun-dun, so I have to... <clears throat> um, the point being, I'm going to talk about the Twilight Realm briefly, or rather the Twilight Dimension, not the actual Twilight Realm. I want to make my word choice here clear, because the Twilight Realm we don't even go to till the end of the game. It's a whole separate place. But this Twilight Dimension, this Twilight... Uh, let's actually not call it... Let's call it Twilight Influence. That goes over Hyrule. It's different. Some people have theorized that the Twilight Realm is basically like the Dark World. Is this timeline's version of the Dark World. Now, there's a couple of problems with that. First problem... Based on all evidence, it is very likely that the Twilight were put into the Twilight Realm way before Ocarina of Time. Uh, I'll discuss that in the timeline significance later. But the idea is this did not happen after Ocarina of Time and then before Twilight. Uh, this happened before those. Ergo, it doesn't quite fit with the multiple timeline thing. What I think works better is it is similar to the Dark Realm because the Dark Realm was simply the Sacred Realm morphed because it is a morphic realm, as I've talked about before, by the wishes of whoever touched the Triforce, a.k.a. Ganon, or Ganondorf, excuse me. The Twilight Realm is not completely morphic, but it does tend to change the people who go in there. All the animals who go into the Twilight Realm get changed into these weird creature things. We see what people look like in the Twilight Realm, although some of that might be artificial. I'll talk about that later. Um, we see what happens to 
two, well, three actually, different groups of people who enter the Twilight Realm from the Good Realm. We see people turned into the spirits, we see people turned into other shadow beasts, and we see people turned into a wolf. I suppose I should say person seen it turn into a wolf. But the point is, in all cases, it affected them. It changed them, altered them, to the point where they were different. It was not until Link actually had the full Triforce of Courage that he was able to manifest normally in the realm of Twilight without being stuck in wolf form. Uh, which would happen later on uh, when we actually go to the Twilight Realm and the, basically the last dungeon. It's actually second to last dungeon. But I never consider Hyrule Castle the last dungeon because it's just kind of boring, if I'm being honest. It's a bit of a letdown. Moving on. At least combat-wise, i got one other thing to talk about there. So the similarities between the two are hard to deny. If you ask me to put money on it, I would say there's no intentional connection between the Twilight Realm and the uh, and the Dark World. The most I could see there being as a similarity is kind of an in-between situation. Imagine if in between the dimension of the Sacred Realm and the dimension of you know, the Prime Material Plane, they created the Twilight Realm, and this is what this is, and therefore because of the similarity of its nature and its connected part to the Sacred Realm, so it's like half Sacred Realm, half Prime Material, so it's functional and normal, but it still has some morphic elements, that would explain why people are affected by it in such a manner. Um, the, uh, yes, I, already, I, I guess, hey gosh, we're on, the, we're on to our next page, yay! Um, a lot of this is me going through the game and making notes as I go, so just a heads up on that. Sorry, guys, I hope I'm not too boring for you. Um, another thing I find uh, interesting to think about is the people who are stuck in spirit form. Um, I think I'm actually going to save that for later, though. I apologize. Let's move on to talking about the purple fog. So we're going through the woods, the lost woods, and there's this purple fog everywhere, and it wasn't there the first time we went through. It only shows up after we've, uh, the twilight influence, uh, extended over it, but even when we remove that, there's still purple fog there. I find that interesting in its own right because that purple fog is deliberately repulsed by light, literal light. The lant, lantern is what actually repulses the purple fog. Uh, it makes me wonder if the point here, and this would be wonderfully subtle if it's true, is that the Twilight Realm isn't actually evil, nor indeed is it actually the source of the problems. It is the evil power residing within the Twilight Realm that is the actual problem. Because that's true in many ways. There is nothing inherently evil in the Twilight. There's nothing inherently evil in the Twilight, the, twilight, the people. There's nothing inherently evil in anything they do. It is specifically Ganondorf, his evil power, and the power of Din that he's using for his malevolence, and the power of Demise, that is, uh, that is causing the problems here. Ergo, the idea here of the twilight being removed, but there's something dark that is still a problem that has to be removed by the light, uh, is probably just a thematic thing and probably mostly there for gameplay purposes. But it does fit the bill surprisingly well when you think about it. And again, this is a Zelda game. They tend to think in that direction. So, you guys have known I keep talking about the original purpose of the dungeons, and you know I was I didn't have much to say about that last week because the spirit tracks where the original purpose was their only purpose. This one's a lot of fun. One, almost every dungeon in Twilight Princess has a unique original purpose to it, in my opinion, and I love speculating on it. Uh, so the Forest Temple. Well, we I'll be talking a little bit more about the geography of the Forest Temple and the world as a whole. Uh, later, right about when we get to the Temple of Time, where it'll be more relevant. But it's my opinion that this is the Deku Tree. Now, two possibilities here. Either this is the Deku Tree's uh, corpse, basically, because he died. We don't actually know the Deku Tree's fate in this timeline, basically. 
Uh, we go back to Okarana's beginning, but at Okarana's beginning, the Deku Tree had already been poisoned and was already doomed to die. Or did we go back before that, which is possible, and therefore save the Deku Tree from ever being poisoned by Ganondorf? We don't know. Um, one way or another, though, I believe the Forest Temple is literally the Deku Tree. Either it's corpse or it's Sproutling's corpse, or some aspect of it, or whatever, that has been dead and has stayed dead for some time. This is, again, getting into that theory I mentioned future. Uh, one of my favorite aspects of this, and you don't even see this till much further in the game, there's a nice establishing shot, much later on, when you're going to the Temple of Time, where you can see the whole of the tree that was the Forest Temple, the first dungeon. And it's very clear that the tree was wrecked. I mean, just you almost see it cracked in half. Uh, it is clear that that's not just a rotten-out tree. That something destroyed that tree. Um, just keep that in the back of your mind, okay? Because, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, that's my thinking, that this was what was left of the Kokiri, of the Deku tree, and of the, uh, of the old, you know, the Lost Woods. And therefore, there's no actual original purpose to it, so much as the fact that we're walking around in a corpse. Um, so then we have... Uh, what? Oh, right. Uh, then we have the creatures of the Fused Shadow. Um, one of the interesting things is m two of the bosses we see appear to literally be the Fused Shadow turned into a monster. Uh, whether that's true or not, we're not 100% certain, since we do know this thing can actually affect others. We see that in the second boss, with Darbus, or whatever his name is. And we see a similar power doing that in the Twilight Shard, what it does to... Uh, uh, Yetta? I can't think of her name. The yet the Yeti woman uh, in, 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 in the Snow Temple. I can't think of her damn name. Anyways, um, but I mention it because it's pretty clear that the Fused Shadows were uh, sealed here for some time, and have been sealed here for some time. So why is it only recently that things have been going to hell? Well, even the answer to that is actually fairly obvious. Remember, all three of the initial dungeons prior to us entering them were submerged, submerged in Twilight, in the Twilight influence, as I mentioned earlier. It is entirely possible that whatever power was in that was sleeping peacefully and normally without issue until the Twilight enveloped them, and then it basically activated the Fused Shadow and either created some horrible monster or, in the case of the second dungeon, uh, distinctly mutated something else into something else. Um, I'll talk more about the Fused Shadow later. Uh, I like the mystical overworld. You probably don't know what I mean by that. Um, whenever you go to talk to the Ocaran of Time Link, uh, O-Link, I don't know what to call him, <laughs> we, we, have, we have 100% confirmed that the Stalfos guy is Link. That is the Link from Ocaran and Majora's Mask. That's him. Uh, whether he, you are his descendant or you are just his successor, doesn't matter. That's him. Pure. <laughs> Line in the sand. Um, but every time you go to talk to him and learn from him, you go into this version of the overworld, which is more metaphoric. You can see Death Mountain and the woods, and, and there's the, the, the Arbiter's Grounds and there's Hyrule Castle. It's beautiful, first of all. But I like it because it gives across a subtle point in visual storytelling. That Link, the old Link, the hero of time, is connected to the land. And that you have to actually become a part of the land yourself as you're learning these abilities from him and yada, yada, yada. It's just a nice little touch that I like. Uh, so lots and lots of great character moments. Um, 
I, I just I just wrote that note. I don't want to go over all of them. This is probably already going to be a long video. Uh, when ki the kids are talking to each other, when they're all scared, huddling in the village, Barnes has his character moments, some of which are humorous, some of which are just character development. There's a lot of great scenes uh, that have a humorous tone to them, of course, but serve the character development thing. The first half of this game lives and breathes characterization. Uh, there's not actually a lot of character growth in the first half of the game. Pretty much all the character growth is focused solely on Midna. Um, but there is a huge amount of characterization as we flesh out the characters and their histories and their backstories and their personalities and their wants and their needs and their desires and their hopes and their dreams and all that fun stuff. And we get to learn a lot of the names and the people behind these characters. And I love that. Um, I also, uh, I also like it when Colin, uh, does something pretty awesome. He, uh, I, I have a note here. He takes away Link's choice. Now you're probably looking at me weird by that. Link has done some pretty brave things by the point in which he reaches Kakariko Village. You know, that's, that's undeniable. He has done stuff above and beyond the Call of Duty, uh, for any normal person. But... When we see him at that point in time, there's the possibility, at least in my mind, that Link is still overwhelmed by everything he's doing, by everything he's going through, by all the events, by all that's happening. It's just, oh, God, uh, you know? Then Colin, who is an ordinary little boy who has no distinct powers or skills or bloodline or triforce of courage or protection or anything, runs out and t tries to save Beth at the cost of his own safety. He shows courage without anything to back it. That could be called foolishness, but foolish or not, he did actually demonstrate that and forced Link to acknowledge that he no longer has the choice but to keep going. Because, and I'm not talking about, oh, well, if a kid can do it, I can do it. It's more like being inspired by the fact that you have inspired someone else. Now, that may sound weird, but it's true. Link inspired Colin. Colin therefore did something which inspired Link. Because remember, neither is aware of the former's uh, interactions before it affects them in return. Now, this still probably doesn't make sense. Let me try and explain this more similarly. Simply, excuse me. Let's say... Uh, I don't know. Um, let's say you're Emperor Palpatine. That's a bad example. Uh, I'll just use this example. Link probably isn't thinking about being an example. He's probably not thinking about being courageous. He's not thinking, be brave. He's just doing. It is my opinion that Link is still struggling up at le for, for the first chunk of the game. At the very least, up until he takes the Master Sword, Link is still just, just trying to get his footing. And it's not until that moment that he really becomes confident and self-assured uh, self enough to really be the hero. Um, which is why the Master Sword lets him wield her. Because, you know, he, he has, at that point, has made his journey and has successfully completed it, and is now a hero worthy of fee. Make sense? Um, but the uh, Colin, so, so he has inspired Colin by those actions, but he's not meaning to, he's not trying to, he's just barely holding on. But from Colin's perspective, Link is this brave, amazing, courageous person, so he has to be brave and courageous in return. So he shows that courage, and it's like, oh, God, and Link goes and saves him, and now Link, who is unaware of the, of the previous connection, sees, that, sees Colin be brave and is inspired by his action. You see how that works out? 
I also uh, like it because Colin goes through a small story arc throughout the course of the game. Uh, it's 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 brief, but it's there. He starts off as, oh, I, I, I don't want to do anything like that, but oh god, I have to do this, but oh god, I have to save Beth, but oh god, help, we need to work on this. And he just gains more and more confidence and more and more strength until by the end of the game, uh, literally in the ending, he is the one with sword and shield in hand escorting the rest of the kids back to uh, the, their village. Um, the Gorons. Why would the Gorons lock people out? Well, I've already talked about this, unfortunately. I kind of talked about that out of order. Sorry, guys. Uh, the idea of just, we can't deal with this, therefore nobody can deal with this. No humans, no nothing, lock my door. It's very much a pride thing, uh, which is also shame. Uh, since pride and shame are basically the same thing. Uh, shame is just false pride. So it makes sense that, you know, the Gorons would completely lock their borders and say, no! And it's funny because as we get to hear the thoughts, basically, of several Gorons um, when we're in spirit form, or rather when they're in spirit form, and we get to find out that basically all of them don't really agree with this whole anti-human thing. Which, again, goes back to that not willing to do anything for themselves. It would be not difficult for the initial Goron to say, Okay, look, we're having some trouble. Please go up there and talk to our elders and help us fix this. You know, we're brothers. We need to work together. Because the Gorons and the humans of Kakariko have always had a very strong relationship. At least that's implied in this game. And I, I think we've seen that in previous games, too. So that's what should have happened. But the Gorons were too prideful, and the humans were too incapable and so nothing happened. It wasn't until someone showed up who was willing to do something about it that, you know, things came to be. Um, now, it is worth noting, Renato probably would have worked towards this, this end anyways because he's one of the members of the Resistance, a.k.a. someone who's willing to actually do something, but, yeah. Now, I know what you're going to say. Renato isn't a member of the Resistance. You liar. I hate everything about you, Arsh. And I'm saying, okay, fair enough, but uh, please, call me the lower runner. I, I don't want to go by you know, something so informal. Now, um... <laughs> So, the original purpose of the Fire Temple. This one's a little bit obvious, but I find it one interesting to think about. Um, obviously, they wanted to seal away the fused shadow here and blah, blah, blah. And obviously, it's where the Gorons mine. But I think based on certain aspects of it and the way it's laid out and the way the Gorons work, I think this was actually the Goron homes. This is like an apartment complex, basically. And it makes perfect sense to me from the Goron mindset you know, pun intended, to live where you work. You know, get up in the day, walk outside, and start working on the mines and get that magnetic ore or whatever it is you want to get. And they do have a fairly large amount of interesting and high-tech uh, technology there, too. And I only mention that because it's not the first uh, or last example of decent technological progression we'll see in this game. Uh, again, keep that in the back of your mind. But the point I want to make with that, the technological thing, is I think that's stuff that's left over from before a certain incident. And I think that they're just using it and making it work, which is another reason why they would have settled there. The uh, other thing uh, I like about the idea of them living there is it's alien. It's alien to have a place that's 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 that, you know, the lava and the, the magnets and the water and the, the rock everywhere. To be homey and comfortable to the Gorons, whereas we look at that like, you know, that that's a mine, that's a workplace. Um, it, it's a different perspective, a different cultural perspective. Of course, it is purely speculative. The only real evidence I have for it is the fact that we don't see any Goron residences. Uh, we go into the Goron Elder Place, and then we go into the mine. And the fact that the other elders have what look like basically homes in there. 
you know, if you look around in every place where the elder is, you see little bits of decor and, and, and you know, hominess. There's chairs, there's a little hearth over there, you know. It looks like someplace you're supposed to just relax and hang out in. Shrug. Anyways, um, Darbus, this is fun. Uh, Darbus goes in rage at Saying Link, and he's like, I'll kill you forever. There are two possible interpretations of why this happened. See, we know that Darbus was sealed away. Uh, I shouldn't say sealed away. He was chained up. He was literally chained up by the other elders and then left there. But he's not unconscious. He's not sealed in the strictest. He's, he's just sitting there breathing heavily until he sees Link. Then he gets so enraged, so angry, he, you know, his flames ignite, he breaks his chains, and he comes after us. Why is that? Two possible reasons, like I say. Reason number one, because the entire time he was holding himself back, the actual Darbus inside was exerting some influence over the, you know, the Twilight monster, Goron, whatever, and was keeping him in check until something interfered with that, that concentration, and that was ruined, or... Seeing someone so utterly consumed with light, which is basically the antithesis and, and enemy of all things Twilight, would have literally caused rage in the fused shadow aspect of, of Darbus, Erko leading to the aforementioned uh, rage. Uh, by the way, it's also possible that both of these things are true. Um, so then we move up to the Zora problem. Now this is interesting. Uh, first of all, I like this because, again, this is a little bit of setting building. Uh, the Zora's fountain being frozen is a setting problem and a personal problem. I mean, obviously we have to save them because there's people there, but I mean, if you think about it, if we don't restore the source of water, Hyrule is screwed. <laughs> Do you know what happens to a land when there's no water? When there's no reliable water source except for rain? That's not a pleasant sight. Funny thing is, I find myself wondering if that was the intent, because that seems a little excessive. But I think it was the intent because Zant's an idiot and has no tactical minds whatsoever. Uh, he is someone who walks up, says, Hey, I'm going to kill your leader because screw you. <laughs> All right, freeze. Bye. And then left. It's not like he cares. It just occurred to me, Zant has a lot of Malik in him. That's, that's interesting. Anyways, so I'm kind of serious about that. But again, we'll talk more about Zant later. The uh, other thing, though... I find interesting is that the Zora's fountain is the source of the water of, of most of, of the Hyrule. That's where all the, the rivers come through the lake, the water in the towns, you know, basically all of that comes from here. So is this literally the source of the water? Like, is this a, a, a uh, I forget what it's called, but a, a water cycle, spigot, river thing, I forget, I forget what the term is for that. Or is this a metaphysical source of the water? In other words, is this something where the water is being produced by some magical means, which, you know, ergo is why the Zoras have this one spot that they are very well entrenched in, uh, because they are basically keeping it, in addition to the fact that they live there. Both of those are possible. I don't know which is more interesting, although the latter would support my theory, the grand unified theory that I'm still building up to. But here's a fun fact. So the Zoras get frozen in the ice, right? Fun fact, even though they're spirits, they're still aware of the cold and being frozen in the ice. And even though the, the, the Hyrule residents back in Castletown are spirits, they're aware of the water shortage. Both of these are interesting facts to me because it showcases the not-quite-dead nature of what happens to a person when they go into the Twilight uh, influence. I'm reminded of a quote from Barbosa, of all people, in the first uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movie. The idea that he has been starving to death and can't die. 
I, I, I am horrified, but it, it really fits that these people wouldn't have actually been able to die because they don't, you know, they don't actually have bodies, but they would still feel the sensation of dehydrating to death constantly and all the time, unable to get any water and suffering in that incredibly horrible state basically forever if we hadn't shown up and done something about it. As an aside, getting back to that whole, you know, people not being willing to do stuff thing, uh, at several points, including at this area, the resistance is like, holy crap, stuff is wrong. And yet everyone else is just like, ah, oh, complain to the guards. And the guards' response is, well, I can't do anything about it. In one case, one of the guards literally says, uh, well, no, this is a problem at Lake Hillian, and that's out of my jurisdiction. I can't do anything about that. Once again, highlighting that same point I already mentioned. Um... So, uh, uh, we mentioned, okay, so I mentioned the, uh, the ex-adventuring thing. Uh, one of the things that's implied is that the resistance is not the, is not new, that these people have been adventurers from some time. And in some cases, their, their parents or their predecessors were adventurers before them. Uh, I mentioned Renato was actually part of the resistance, even though that's not literally true. Uh, I mentioned that because Renato and Telma's history, and Telma's being a part of the old resistance, and the fact that uh, Ashu, I believe, no, wrong guy, um, the, 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 the bespectacled kid, uh, mentioned how his father was part of it as well, em emphasizes that there has been this, this continuing adventuring group for, for some time now. And so we see some of the older aspects of that and helps to explain why a lot of the NPCs can help Link in the way they can because they have all these connections because they've already done all this work because they've already been adventurers. I also find I like the idea of there being an adventuring group that has persisted, especially in a setting like this, which is ripe for adventurers. But also the fact that there's also only one adventuring group because only exceptional individuals would be willing to do that. And as we've already established, most people are fairly unexceptional in this setting as a result of the above said problem. The Gerudo, well, there's one confirmed Gerudo in the entire game, and that is Telma. Uh, there have been theories that a couple other people are Gerudo. We're not sure about that. Uh, I'm going to discuss that more later, okay? So just keep that in the back of your mind. Now, the uh, original purpose of the, of the Ocean Temple, of the... Uh, of the of the the place there what is the original purpose of that place well again visual storytelling audio storytelling as i was going through there i got the feeling more and more that this was a place that probably best describes the definition of temple it's way at the bottom of the lake it's the lowest point in the map that we can go to it's got it's basically designed around a merger of water and land i know that sounds like a weird perspective but what i mean by that is if you go in there, you need the Zora suit to get around, but only about a chunk of the time. The rest of the time, it's all stuff you're doing up and about that you can't do underwater. And you have to do both in order to accomplish the dungeon, a.k.a. you need both land and water to survive. I mean, this makes sense in its own way. But I mention this because I think Ruto and the Zora people in general probably set this up, uh, sent this temple up as a as a sign, as an honoring, as their personal way of honoring the Hero of Time. Uh, now, you're probably like, well, what do you mean? The Hero of Time barely did anything in this timeline. Yeah, I think he did a lot more. Uh, it's ignoring the fact that we already know by Majora's time that he's fairly well known, uh, and that's only a few months after Okarina. So, 
yeah, no, I think it's very likely that this is just a place to honor him and to honor them. The idea that, you know, the, the, the Zora and the Hylians need to be like this. Um, ah, yes, so... This is kind of a horrible scene. Uh, Mina has been going over a, a great character development thing uh, throughout the first entire half of the game, her first arc, which is letting go of her anger, letting go of her a hatred, uh, being willing to accept other people, acknowledging that the people of the light are not her enemies, and beginning to care about others and, and that sort of thing, right? Um, and by the end of the water dungeon, she, by the end of dungeon three, she's gotten to the point where she's willing to be a lot more honest, a lot more open, with Link and with the others. And the very next thing that happens is she gets completely curb-stomped by Zant. Great scene, by the way. Uh, most people I know, with one exception, were completely expecting the game to keep going after we got the three fused shadows. No one I know was expecting Zant to quite literally be standing there waiting for us to get out and to curb-stomp us in, and then basically nearly kill Midna by overexposure to a light spirit. Um, which is kind of messed up. Uh, quick note, quick note before I move on. There is a very creepy scene, uh, which I haven't discussed in detail, nor will I for some time, that happens before these events. I actually just skipped over the note there in my notes. Sorry, guys. But there's a very creepy scene, which is much more metaphysical, much more representative than literal, showcasing the interloper war. That, that's what it's talking about. Uh, the only thing I want to comment on it is, I can't believe this didn't occur to me before, but they just do a specific point where the eyes go white uh, when they're talking to each other, when they're talking, ah, and they was they wanted the power of gold, and then they never say it, but the implication is suddenly there, and I again, I can't believe I never got this, that they were blinded. Blinded by greed, blinded by power, blinded by lust, blinded by their desire to go and claim the Triforce. Hence, white eyes. Um... That's also why uh, Link is represented as one of the interlopers as well, and, you know, has no eyes when he's doing so. And then, of course, they're banished away. Again, we'll talk more about the interlopers and the interloper war later. So then is one of the better scenes in this game, where Midna is... Uh, you have to carry her to, to Zelda. Uh, she is dying. Uh, she has been basically poisoned by overexposure to light, she is gasping and panting for breath. Her song is playing quietly, morosely. The storm, there's a storm going on, raining, thunder. It's beautifully atmospheric. It's wonderful. It is flawed as crap. Oh, my God. I, I know speedrunners, guys who usually don't give a damn, guys and girls who usually don't give a damn about story and lore, who hate this section because of one flaw. There's something in programming, I forget what it's actually called, but it's overriding music. In other words, under normal circumstances, you know, if you get near an enemy, battle music starts, right? You leave an enemy, battle music ends, and you go back to normal music. You know, in FF terms, you enter combat, song starts, you leave combat. But we've, we've had mastered for years the prospect of concept of the overriding music. In other words, no matter what events are happening, keep playing this song until this definitive point. They screw that up. So they've got this wonderful, beautiful music playing, and all of a sudden, dun, dun, there's an enemy in range, and then it goes back to Minas, but then there's an enemy in range. And uh, it's hard to really get into the moment, even though it's a great scene, because it ruins it because of that, that screw-up. It's another music failure. <laughs> Sorry, guys, but... Uh, um, but then, uh, then, oh, God, then, then there's that wonderful, wonderful, wonderful scene. 
where you get to Zelda and she's gasping and she's dying and and this whole time and if you talk to her if you hit the Z button she's like oh we need to get to Zelda please take me to Zelda quick I need to hit Zelda before it's too late the implication is obvious our motivation is obvious we're trying to get her there to save her if I could pause for a moment the very first time I ever played this game uh, I hated Midna first time I saw her I was like oh god I snooty little uppity twat by the time I hit this scene, I was like this. Like, oh god, I gotta get there. And I was just racing to get there because I had to save her because I cared. The best part, and this is what I've, I've said this before. I know this is a repeat, but I haven't said this on my YouTube. And you know what? It's, this is the game. This is the moment. This is brilliant character development because I never noticed the transition. I never realized the moment at which I went from being irritated by this character to caring about her so much I was desperate to save her. I was. Me. The player. I liked that. That really hit me. And so we go through all that and we're rushing through there and we're trying to get to the end and we get there and she says, please, you have to save him. She has been desperate to get to us to Zelda so that Zelda can help us and try and fix things in her stead. Midna has sufficiently grown to care about at least one person quite literally more than her own life. Oh, by the way, I absolutely think there's a romantic connection between uh, Midna and Link. It is very obvious, and it is wonderfully understated. Unlike most romances where it's like, Whoa. it's the Keiko and O'Brien thing. I know that sounds weird, but the two just are so comfortable with each other. There is so much casual contact between the two and so much of a familiarity with the way the two interact with each other, the way they look at each other. I mean, just little glances, little animations and, and leanings and all that stuff. You can tell the two are genuinely close. Sorry, guys, but yeah. Bring back Midna! Anyways, um, you know what? Just for you guys, bring back Midna! There we go. Just, just for you. It's the only time I'm saying it that way. Um... So yeah, I love that scene. And then, of course, Zelda breaks the rules. She literally gives the Triforce of Wisdom to Midna. I love that scene. Um, one of the things I've talked about before is I live for reactions. I love it when I'm, like, when I do those backseat runs, or when I'm in, okay, when I go to the movies with my sister, you know, she's sitting right here, she'll lean over and she'll be like, well, blah, 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 blah. She'll ask me basically a lore question. And I'll respond with something, and I usually don't answer her outright. Because I know my sister, and she likes to think. So I'll give her a few other pieces of the puzzle, basically. And, she'll, and, and every now and again, she'll just get this, Oh, or, Oh, God, or, Dude, that's awesome, or, You know, the, the gravity of the situation is something she understands. That reaction of understanding the gravity of the moment is what I live for. Um, it's something I live for as a GM, something I live for as a writer, and something I live for as a lore runner. And so I love those moments and so when I was just doing that first lore run with her and we got to the scene and she's like what's happening and I'm just sitting there and I'm, I was sad and I'm like well there is one thing that bypasses even a curse like this and she's like oh god because she got it she's like oh god she's giving her the Triforce oh my god um but as I mentioned earlier the Triforce bypasses everything else from this point on, Mina has absolutely no trouble manifesting anywhere at any way because she has the Triforce of Wisdom. Just like Zelda had no trouble being completely normal and fine while in the Twilight Influence. Remember, very beginning of the game, she was there in the castle, she was imprisoned. Now, 
Quick anecdote. Why do you think Zelda was just imprisoned up there? Well, I've got two answers for you. Number one, she was clearly imprisoned, but like in a very casual way. You know, there were no bars on her uh, on her prison. It was just you know, guards and, and inevitability. Um, the first and obvious answer is the is the petty answer, revenge. We'll get more into that much later. But I think the more interesting answer is that Zelda herself was keeping herself there out of a sense of grief and out of a sense of responsibility because she feels like she had failed her kingdom. This is appropriate because there is one other leader of a kingdom who feels she has failed them in this game. This also, I feel, is part of what inspires me to her second character arc. Her first character arc was learning to care. That's not actually that hard. I mean, I hate to say that, but that is true. Zelda then sacrifices herself to save Midna, and the two of them go to save Link, and give you know, and giving her the wisdom and all. That. I mean, granted, she literally has the Triforce of Wisdom from this point on. In fact, uh, it could be argued that Midna goes back into the Twilight Realm with the with the Triforce of Wisdom. And let me tell you, I've had some fascinating story ideas about that concept. But the relevant point here is the second character arc is becoming a good leader. Understanding responsibility, duty, consequence. One of the things that she shows in the second character arc is how much she is reacting to consequence. Things she never really thought about before. The way that the mirror interacts with, what's her name, in, in the snow area. The, the way that these creatures are affected by the lives and the, the decisions and the choices that she made and her ancestors made and our ancestors made. She is thinking about things in a long-term perspective as well as in a personal perspective. Which, of course, lead to her final decision, but I don't want to go into that right now. Um, so yeah, she gives her the Triforce of Wisdom, and from this point on, we get much less cutscene heavy. There are still a few big cutscenes, but uh, the, the, the commonality of cutscenes plummets. Instead, the second half, for lack of a better term of it, for the Twilight Princess game is very visual storytelling. So forgive me for telling you stuff that you're going to roll your eyes at me for. Um, but, uh, so a couple things here. Uh, Skull Kid... We go out to get the Master Sword, right? Skull Kid is there in the Lost Woods. I'll be talking about the Lost Woods and the, the provincial thing in a bit. Just hang on, I should make sure that note is up here because it should be. Better be. Is it up here? Where's that note? Oh, it's right back here, isn't it? Yep, there it is. Okay. So sorry, we'll be getting to that. That's one of my last things I want to talk about. Um, but Skull Kid's in the Lost Woods, and it is clearly the Lost Woods, uh, which makes it interesting that the Temple of Time is there, especially considering it's clearly the same Temple of Time from Ocarina of Time. Or is it? But again, get to that in a moment. Uh, why is Skull Kid there? Well, there's a couple of options. Remember, this is the Skull Kid who went through Majora's Mask. This is the Skull Kid who went through all those events and grew and came out of it and was no longer a dick at the end of it, right? And was friends with Link, for that matter. It is not unreasonable to think that he basically became something of a guardian for the Lost Woods, especially given the fact that the Temple of Time was probably moved there. Sorry, I said I'd get to it later, but I, apparently it was like 30 seconds later. <laughs> um, so it's my opinion that Skull Kid is there protecting it, helping to keep people who shouldn't get there from getting there. Now, of course, we should get there, and he probably knows that. And if he was a normal person, he'd be like, yeah, okay, it's right there. But he's not a normal person, he's Skull Kid. And remember, he was not exactly a good guy, even before Majora was put on his face. He was mischievous and 
that kind of a person, even if they're inclined to help us, is going to help us in a sort of a roundabout, sort of a mischievous kind of a way. Hence the games he plays, first when we're a wolf, and then when we're a human. Um, question, though, for you, a uh, little horrifying question of the day. See those little puppets that pop out and attack you? Um, do you think those are just dolls that he makes? Or do you think those are um, Kokiri? Remember, we know what happens to Kokiri when they lose the protection of the woods. They become the Koroks, earth, uh, plant spirits, basically, wood creatures. So, and the Kokiri aren't really present anywhere else in the game. Anyways, moving on. Um, so, uh, I just want to make a note here. Um, this, is, this is something I just thought I'd talk about earlier. So, I have done no less than four backseat runs of Twilight Princess. No joke. Uh, for those of you who have not seen me talk about this, a backseat run is where someone who knows the game, who's played the game, is on the controller because they know how to play it. They've got the precision, they've got the moves, etc. But the person who is playing the game is sitting back there or over there or wherever, telling them what to do, solving the dungeon and, and figuring out how to beat the bosses and whatnot. So it's like, oh, quick, hit, hit, hit the face with the bomb over there. And so the guy who's on the controller says, okay, I know how to do that. Bam. It's a great way to introduce people into gaming who don't have the reflexes or the time or the, the, the finger power or they have issues or whatever uh, into gaming. It's a great way to do that. Um, and it's a great way to share in an otherwise non-co-op game with someone you love and someone you care about. Uh, I've done a lot of backseat games in my life, obviously. But like I said, fourth time I've done a backseat run of this game. Uh, this time for a very good friend of mine who uh, I, I, we got to the point where you have to do the, the jumping puzzle uh, right before the Master Sword, and he was like, okay. And it took him, I swear to God, 40 seconds to beat it. He crushed it. Just, and done. And I'm just sitting there laughing. <laughs> Anybody who saw my stream when I actually did the backseat run with my sister uh, of Twilight Princess knows it did not take us 40 seconds in one shot to defeat it. It was a lot more than that. Anyway, so the sword, the Master Sword, Fee, of course, is the Sword of Light. And one of the things I like is there's a subtle touch, again, visual storytelling, where Mina's like, eh. And then she, like, pauses and realizes that it's not actually hurting her. It's so reflexive of her to, to, to try and shy away from the light because the light literally hurts her. And then she's like, oh, right, it doesn't hurt me anymore because Triforce of Wisdom. Nice touch. Uh, and, of course, I shouldn't even have to explain why Link at this point can pick up the... the, the the Master Sword, he, he has earned his, his weight. One thing I want you to keep in mind for the future, the Gerudo Valley, the Gerudo Desert, is broken. It has giant chasms, it has bare scraps of ruins, it has almost no life in it. There are very few creatures and very few enemies in that area, and it is just dead. Like I said, broken. Keep that in the back of your mind. Um... So, the Arbiter's Ground. What was the original purpose of the Arbiter's Ground? You know, now we're at Dungeon 4. Well, this is actually really, really obvious, because they flat out tell you what the Arbiter's Ground original purpose was. It was a damn prison, where they sentenced and uh, carried out judgment on criminals, or for whatever reason. Um, but it's implied that's not just, you know, criminals, like, oh, you stole a loaf of bread. No, I'm talking about, like, the Demon Sword. <sighs> One question that's been brought up several times, is this the Spirit Temple? I think it is. But again, I don't want to talk about it just yet. For reasons that I'll get to when I get to my Grand Unified Theory, I do absolutely think this is the Spirit Temple repurposed by the Kingdom of Hyrule to be this new uh, 
gulag of evil spirits and demons and beasts and undead and all that horrible stuff. Um, also, Stalord, or Stalord, I've heard it pronounced both ways, is an interesting concept because two, two ideas. Number one, is it an amalgam of all the dead, you know, it combined into this horrible creature of doom and death? Or two, and I like this idea a lot better, was this actually a real beast that they kept in here that simply died over time? Because remember, Zant shows up and animates the thing with the sword. So, yeah, I think the I think the second one personally, I think this was a massive creature that was being kept in the Arbiter's grounds, uh, either because it was imprisoned here, or for another reason. Again, Grand Unified Theory, yada yada. You probably are already seeing the pieces of this theory kind of come together here. Um. This is probably one of the good places where the ambient music really fits. Uh, didn't make me sick or nauseous. Very creepy, very dark, lots of bugs and sand and just wonderful atmosphere. Again, lots of visual storytelling. You get the impression of how this place used to look. Uh, very, very advanced to a lot of uh, decent amount of what is effectively steampunk uh, going throughout. And good stuff there. Um, so the demon sword. I just want to mention the demon sword in brief. Uh, the mini boss of this dungeon. Uh, do you think they found the demon sword and bound it here? Or do you think they made the demon sword and then after they either couldn't control it or finished using it, bound it here? I think the latter, personally. Uh, sages, okay, so... The sages. The sages look like creepy old men with faces that are masks and empty spaces where their faces should be. Uh, very, very anime. But... Who are these people? Now, one thing I do keep in mind, remember, these are not the sages from Ocarina of Time. Those sages were not awoken yet. None of those people ever became a sage because Ocarina of Time never happened effectively in this timeline, right? So these are the sages who already were sages as of that point in time. But that leads to a question. These sages, were they the ones who... Well, okay. Basically, I postulate that these sages were already, the sages that were already around and out and about prior to Ocarina of Time, and then during that seven-year gap, Ganondorf murdered them, killed them all. And that's why new sages needed to be awakened during the course of Ocarina of Time in the, in the future timeline. You with me? So, they go to execute Ganondorf. Doesn't that seem a little extreme, if you think about it? It might not. It might not seem extreme. But I think there's another reason for that, which we'll get to later. Um, so, the... The snow... The, okay, so, yeah, there's a lot... My notes are getting a lot more truncated here. So, that we've got the uh, the snow... I actually wrote it down as Snowhead. <laughs> Whoops, not Majora's. Uh, snow Peak, right? So, this is an interesting dungeon. Uh, first of all, like I said, favorite dungeon. Uh, I think part of the reason why it's my favorite dungeon is it is the perfect... Um, what's the term? Juxtaposition. It is the juxtaposition of the dungeon. So it's nice looking, well kept in some cases, completely ruined in others. Uh, it's got this nice little light, peaceful, calm music playing. And it's got a homey feeling to it. Which makes sense because it is the home of the two yetis. Their bedroom is there, their keys are there. You get the strong impression that most of these monsters that are here didn't show up until after the mirror shard showed up. So it's probably just a normal house for all intents and purposes for them under other circumstances. But that's the point. That's the other half of the juxtaposition. 
really, really creepy things and just, just tons, some of the worst enemies in the entire game. I would argue the second most difficult enemies in the entire game, uh, those frickin' ice-flinging guys, are here. And so we've got, ver and we've got a variety of enemies who are very threatening and dangerous. You know, the, the Wolfos who, who lunge at you and the Friesards who are just massive towering death. And, and it's in a place where there's such comfortableness and warmness. And you have infinite hearts. You can just go back and get more soup. And then you go back into the death, and it's warm and comfortable. A couple little interesting side notes about the design of this place. You might not have ever noticed. First of all, the obvious thing. You get the ball and chain in the dungeon where the married couple is. Okay, now that we've got that out of the way. The slightly less obvious thing. There's no hearts in this dungeon. I'm serious. The enemies don't drop hearts. The items don't drop hearts. Now, you can always go back and get some more soup. And I never had health as a problem, even though there is a there are several enemies who are combat dangerous, not uh, repeat dangerous. Which I'm not going to get into that design discussion right now, because you, got, you not only have that the soup, but you know, well that's it, that's it, that's the reason. You can always go back and get more soup and, and you know refill your health, but they don't drop hearts. It's not until the very end when they get oh love lots of hearts that you know that that situation is reversed, um, and of course the actual piece of heart flies out of them as well. Uh, also, if I didn't comment on it, you know, people would probably make fun of me, but the actual dungeon lock is the only dungeon lock that isn't a normal boss lock. It's a heart, which snaps in two when you unlock it. The, uh... The boss here, Blizzetta, is wonderfully creepy. I love the gimmick of having to look down at your reflection in order to figure out where she is and what's, where they're going to attack. I love the fact that it's good on reflexes. You have to be fast. You have to know what you're doing. You have a few seconds each given action to do something, otherwise you lose your time and you, you screwed up. I love the fact that it's got great music that changes based on the phase of the music. I love the fact that she looks like this massive Friesard once you start breaking her down. It's, it's just, it's an amazing boss fight. Great visual design, great animation, great gimmick, great music, great fun. Uh, really, really, really like that boss fight. I just wanted to praise it again. Um, so then we just kind of rush ahead to talk about the Temple of Time. There's a very big question here. When are we in the Temple of Time? If you don't catch this, when we get to the Temple of Time, it is in such utter disrepair and ruins that it's been gone for, at the bare minimum, the centuries range. This is a place that has been dissolved to barely having the floor of, of stone still there. And yet when we go through the door, we go into a pristine, wonderful... I mean, it is literally the most pristine, polished-looking location in the entire game. The only thing that comes close is Hyrule Castle later on, and that has some other issues with it, which, which conflicts with that. This entire dungeon, with one exception, looks like it's brand new. The only exception is right at the end when you fight Ar Armagoma, or however you're supposed to pronounce that. So when are we going in through this? Now, I've heard several theories here. The most common one here all the time is we go into the past. And after some thinking about it, I think that's true. But I want to toss out another theory really quick. Uh, and that theory is that we're not really going through here in the most linear sense of the word. That we are going through a sliver of the dungeon. Uh, a sliver in time that was pulled out of the timeline and just placed here for us to go through it. Which then will terminate once we're done going through it. Like I said, that's actually a neat idea, and I like it, but I don't think it's true for a reason I'll go into in a moment. Um, this place, more than any other location in the entire game, feels like it has traps in it. Now, I know what you're saying. This is a Zelda game. 
Arsh. There's traps everywhere. To which I say, I told you to call me Lore Runner. Damn it. Don't call me Arsh. I'm kidding. You can call me whatever. You can call me Timbuk2 for all I care. Um, please don't call me Timbuk2. Call me Tim Arsh2, maybe. Arsh2D2. Let's not go down that path. Um, there are no... Everything else in the game, and I mean literally every other dungeon, it feels like it is natural traps... Uh, in terms of the terrain, and you know, the wood or the vines or the lava or whatever, they weren't designed to be obstacles for you to overcome. Similarly, uh, most of the enemies are like natural enemies that would be there. But this place, this one place, feels like a fortified location that had traps deliberately set up so that they were to prevent people from getting in, and enemies laid out to prevent people from getting in. Don't forget, this is the first time we fight a Dark Knot in this game. And Dark Knots are, in my opinion, the hardest enemy in this game. Uh, of, of anything, really. Um, and it, if nothing else, it shows how serious this situation is being taken. So, why? Why have all those traps? Why have those puzzles? It's very clear visual storytelling. So what's the story they're trying to tell? Well, before I get to my theory, I want to also point out, I mentioned everything is pristine except for one thing. That's right at the end. As you get to the end, that last corridor is the first place you start to see cracks in the wall and bits of stone that are broken out. And then you get to the room where Armor Goma is, and it's incomplete or broken. And that's the thing. There are two ways to interpret this. Either the last bit of the dungeon was never completed, or it was broken by Armor Goma, most likely. So, here's my theory. The Temple of Time was actually moved. See, much thought has been given of the geography of Ocarina versus Twilight Princess, and I myself held to the, this theory strongly that, you know, the, the Lost Woods is where Castletown was in Ocarina of Time. Regoing through it on analysis mode, I don't think that's true anymore, especially with my Grand Unified Theory. The idea here is that after the events of the beginning of Ocarina in the Child Timeline, a.k.a., oh my god, Ganondorf's going to take the, the Triforce run... <laughs> or however he phrased it. I'm sure he did it more eloquently than that. Um, they decided keeping the great sacred treasure right next door to the kingdom of, you know, the castle kingdom, the front doors, was probably not a good idea. So they literally moved it. They uh, either tore down or broke down or otherwise literally transported the Temple of Time, you know, piece by piece, over to the Lost Woods, which was probably Link's idea. I mean, first of all, they already had that mansion out there they could build around, but second of all, they could have extra protection for it. You have to get through the Lost Woods to even reach the temple, and then the temple would have all these traps and all these things intended to make sure you couldn't go through it and enter the sacred realm. In other words, that first room is clearly the same room, or at least the same design as the one we see in Ocarina, but there's no pedestal. Remember that? No pedestal for the three gems. In other words... That's not the obstacle to get in. Remember, that was the only obstacle before. Raru, all he made during the age of Era of Chaos was the, 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 the door of time, which required the three, the three gems to get in, and that's it. That was the obstacle to reaching the Triforce. Now, the obstacle is an entire dungeon worth of enemies and traps and otherwise problems to get through in order to get to this Triforce. You follow me? The question I have is, this, did this happen before or after? the big event that I still haven't talked about. Uh, both of those are valid. Uh, if you were to ask me, I would say this happened probably before, uh, although after has some ironic pro uh, pro possibilities as well. Um, so yeah, we moved the sword, we moved all that stuff there. Again, the Master Sword was obviously moved here as well. Um, 
Question, why did they leave the Dominion Rod in here too? Well, two possibilities. Uh, one, it's a valued treasure they wanted to defend, so duh. Two, for whatever reason, ties were cut off with Skyloft. Oh, by the way, quick note, uh, I kept writing in my notes Skyloft rather than whatever it's called in Twilight Princess because I am of the like 99% convinced that that is Skyloft. So I'm just going to keep calling it Skyloft, forgive me. Anyways, they were cutting off ties from Skyloft, you know, the messenger from the skies and all that. Or Skyloft cut off ties with them, probably unintentionally. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, ergo, so they can't really contact Skyloft anymore, so they've got this sacred treasure that's valuable to the kingdom. Let's put it somewhere safe. So, a couple notes here. Um, how did Zant get a mirror shard in here? This is probably the first time I'm willing to accept that this is just a gameplay thing, because it's in the past. There's a mirror shard in the past. How did Zant get into the door of time to... Well, actually, I do have a lore explanation. It's very mundane. It's very stupid. So forgive me. The lore explanation is Zant got into the door of time and was like, yeah, they'll never find anything in here. Tossed the shard in and left. Then it was found by a golem. We see in the very last room several massive golems that can be controlled by the Staff of Domination. This is also why I think this probably happened before or after the big event. I'm just going to start calling it the war, because that's what it is. Um, the idea here is, if you look in the last room, there's a lot of very large, larger than any other we've seen of these golem things, these massive creatures that are can be controlled by the Staff of Domination, or the whatever it's called. And... Um, I think those are weapons that were developed for a purpose. I think this, the the shard in this case was actually found, used, mutated, another creature. Uh, and by creature, of course, uh, we could actually literally mean it found a little uh, Skultula or whatever, one of Goma's children, and that's what happened. And then it mutated into the, the Armagoma, which actually makes a lot of sense. Or it's entirely possible Armagoma is a shadow mutation of another weapon they were developing in here for the war, or from the war, depending on which it is. <sighs> Regardless, um, I just want to point out one thing really quick here, uh, in evidence of my grand unified theory. One of the quotes that is mentioned is that there were prolonged wars after Ocran of Time, before Twilight Princess, so in that in-between period. I should say after Majora's. Um, that devastated the Sheikah to the point where the Sheikah were were basically not even a, a force or a people anymore. Just feel like pointing that out. Uh, so the Hidden Valley uh, is a great, great sequence. I love the spaghetti western thing uh, of taking all the all of the Bacoblins who have settled there. It's also a great culture point because Bacoblins naturally don't really lend themselves towards you know culture in the strictest sense of the word, other than following the strong, and they have no one to follow, so they just kind of find a place to hide, <laughs> which is exactly what the Hidden Village was for them. Um, similarly, though, I love the second time through the Hidden Village. It's like, dong, dong, shh, da -da -da, and it's this great music, and we've got to go through this town to play with cats. I love it, I love it. Uh, so then we've got Metal Gear! Metal Gear, Metal Gear! I'm sorry, I made that joke on my stream, too. So Metal Gear's in this game. Uh, there is a freaking Metal Gear cannon is effective what it is, which which is what actually gets you up to Skyloft. However, I mentioned the Metal Gear thing because it is a part of something that Skyloft itself gets across well. Again, I don't remember what it's originally called, and I don't care, because it's Skyloft, I'm sorry. It's Magitech. It is clearly technology with magical augmentation. 
and it's it's all over the place. Again, that visual storytelling really, really shines in Skyloft. As you're going through there, it is a type of ruin we haven't seen before. I mean, we've seen ruins. We've seen places that have gotten, you know, run down or whatever. But this place, this place is devoid. It has the least enemies of any dungeon in the entire game. It has massive stretches of emptiness. It has chunks where literally the obstacle you have to defeat is the floor. I mean, the, the difficulty, the enemy of that dungeon is the fact that the city itself is basically falling apart. Actually, I mean, it's literally falling apart. There are chunks where the floor is gone. There are chunks we have to crawl under the floor because the top... It's brilliant storytelling. I, and even the music, which I hate, admittedly, and I usually play on mute. Uh, I didn't this time, though. I wanted to soak it in. Was, was getting across that feeling of you are alone. This is an empty, devoid place. There's no one here. There hasn't been anyone here for a long, long time. And the few people who are left, the Ouku, or the Okos, however you're supposed to pronounce that, they don't know how to upkeep this place. They probably don't even care. This is just where they live for now. And if it falls, well, then we'll live wherever we live then. It doesn't matter. The sense of absolute desolation is very strong in this area. Believe it or not, I don't actually think Skyloft is directly tied to my grand unified theory of war. I think this is just the final fate of Skyloft. The Minish left, whether the Minish were the original inhabitants or people who lived on Skyloft we just never saw on Skyward, the Minish left Skyloft. That was before Minish Cap in the backstory of that, right? And then that led, at least I feel naturally, into the Kokiri and other fairies and, and you know magical creatures on the land below. But the people up here... They just kind of degenerated over time. They never advanced. They never moved on. And it got to the point where the only survivors left are these Ooku, who may or may not be uh, descendants of the original uh, people. I've heard a strong theory, actually, that the Ooku are actually what's left of the birds, whose names I can't think of, uh, in Skyward Sword. That they have degenerated to this point. Barely able to fly. Barely capable of doing anything on their own. Tiny little things, you know. So they can't maintain this place anymore. And there's hints all over the place of the connections between this list and Skyloft. The gardens, the, the islands, the art of the, the, just the design, the architecture, everything about it screams that. It's brilliant storytelling. And it really feels utterly abandoned. Um, it is possible that it is related to my war theory, which I'll get to later, of course. Um, and then you fight Argoragok, or Aragiragurgaragok. I believe it's the latter one. Um, fun fight, a little simple, one of my favorite fights in the game. Then we go to the Twilight Realm. I know I'm kind of racing through these, but forgive me. Um, hmm. So, the Twilight Realm is interesting. We know that the interlopers were already very advanced before they were banished into the Twilight Realm. I mention that because it helps explain the place. Now, naturally, the Twilight Realm is designed to look fairly alien to everything else. I've already mentioned this, the digital, uh, created, artificial aspect to most of the, uh, the Twilight creatures and the Shadow creatures, specifically to contrast the more natural, smooth, organic look of everything else. But this place looks technological. This place looks like it would actually belong in a science fiction piece. And I think that fits perfectly. I think, once again, we are seeing magic technology on display, especially given the way some of the technology works, but, and the fact that they've specifically referred to the powers of the elders as magic. But one interesting thing is the fact that it is mentioned that the leaders of the, of the Twilight Tribe are granted that significant magical power. 
it's not a bloodline thing like with Zelda, who is of the descendant of Hylia. It is a, we will transfer this power to you because you are the leader thing. That might imply more of a technological hint than I was already thinking. We already know the fused shadow itself is basically a tool, and I have some theories about that as well. Um, again, I still think strongly this is a Magitek thing, but it just speaks to the level of advancement that these people had. So, we're going to start wrapping up here. Uh, first, let's talk about Zand. I love Zand. I know that Shadow, if you're watching this, you hate me for this. I'm sorry. Please forgive me for totally disagreeing with you on this. Zant is awesome. Zant is among my favorite Zelda characters ever. Because his character arc and his portrayal and his perspective are brilliant. Like I said, I have a specific voice. I do him in everything I try to talk about when I'm saying lines by Zant. It's very cool and mysterious on purpose because Zant is wearing that mask. He is literally wearing a helmet to hide his weak, flawed features. He does not look like a strong leader because he isn't. He really is Malik. He really is leaning on the crutches in order to provide him the strength he has. He has no power, no skill, no experience, no wisdom, no cunning, no intellect. He has nothing going for them other than the fact that he was sufficiently desperate and petty to be a pawn for someone else without actually being bothered by that fact. He is so devoted to Ganondorf. It's like, oh, yes, 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 give me power, master. Because that's what Zant really is. He is a unstable, whiny, petulant child. And we actually see that mask lower bit by bit several times we see him. When we first see him in the first cutscene, as he's invading, you know, the, the Hyrule throne room, he's, you may surrender, you you know, and you can tell he's just playing up the part. Like, this is what, in his mind, an evil overlord should look like. What, what a proper representative of his god should look like. And so I must be, you know, oh, yes. Yeah, wait, wait, hang on, let me, let me, just, so, so, you know, he's got this thing going on. So he's like, yes, yes, yes. And over time, his mask, both literally and figuratively, opens up a bit. So you can see his mouth. He's like, ah. You and he do this, and he gets a little more unstable, and his word choice changes around a bit, and it just cracks a little bit. And then you see him, and he completely removes the mask, which is appropriate because then we see Zant as he really is this stupid, whiny little child. He was always a brat. Now, one thing that's interesting is it's mentioned that he was in the line of succession, someone who was in consideration for being the next ruler of the Twilight. I mention that because that means either A, he was someone who was genetically in line, or B, he was in a position of significant importance to be you know, pushed up to that position. I think it's the former. Uh, let's call this the, the King Joffrey kind of a situation. We'll, we'll just leave it at that. Because, um, yeah, <laughs> genetics is not the best choice of, of ruler, I'm telling you. Um, so yeah, I think he was literally just some petulant child who was like, I'll be king. I just can't wait to be king. Wait, I can't be king? No, no, no. And he never had to grow up from that either. He never had to do anything. He strikes me as the kind of person that, well, I don't know what Medina was like before the game started. He was always the person with the silver spoon in his mouth. And not getting what he wanted was what pissed him off. It wasn't the fact that he was denied for the throne or anything like that. He wanted it. That's my... I want that lollipop. It's mine now. And I'm going to take you, you... Why won't you let me have my lollipop? Why won't you let me have my lollipop? 
you see? I love that. And I love the fact that uh, he has no anything going for him except for power. He is probably the furthest extent of power in, in the absence of everything else I've ever seen in all of fiction. Uh, I've talked about this before. Uh, Zeraki in Bleach, Voldemort in Harry Potter, uh, as examples of characters who don't have a lot of skill or a lot of cunning or a lot of intellect. They don't really apply their power very well, but they have tons of power and they just over someone with it, right? Um, this is how I've always felt Zant is, because, which is especially appropriate because he has no power of himself. He has nothing for himself. But he is granted the power of Ganondorf, which is the power of Din, which is the power of the freaking Triforce. So you get the idea. that There is a massive backing of power behind him. So he's been able to do so many of the things he has without artistry, without subtlety. All of his tactics... All right, we're going to conquer Hyrule. How? Uh, bring my shadow beasts into the main throne room. You may surrender or die. That sounds cool, right? Yeah, that sounds really cool. I like that one. Let's okay. Next on me, uh, 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 spread twilight throughout all the realms. It is my God's wish. There, if you look at all of his plans, none of them have anything going for them at all. Look at the way he fights. This is a brilliant example of gameplay and story integration. The way he fights, he starts off and he's like, okay, I'm going to fight you like this, I'm going to fight you like this, and oh god, and oh god, and oh god, oh god, ah! and by the end of the fight, the literal music is frantic and high-pitched and squealing, and he has no idea what he's doing, and he's jumping around, bouncing, and just, ah, oh god, why would you just die, why would you just die, and he brings out his swords, because none of his magic is working, and he's basically doing this. I mean, there is no... There, he's not even doing like what a normal person would do with a sword arc, which is still wrong. He's not even doing an actual proper sword maneuver. He is doing nothing but... Blah, 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 blah. And it's brilliant. Because that's exactly what Zant is. Nothing. He's just a guy who didn't matter to anyone other than the fact that he could be used as a tool. I also love the fact that he's unoriginal. If I could add one more thing to this. And I just love this because, you know, he's... His big, all of his plans, all of his techniques and fighting, all come from someone else. And again, gameplay and story integration. As you're going through that final fight, it's like, quick, uh, what does what the shadow touch? Ah, oh, this this thing. Okay, and he like he starts using different boss techniques based on villains you've already defeated, creatures that have been touched by the twilight mirror or by the uh, by the fused shadow, literally borrowing their tactics to fight you because he can't think of anything to fight you with. And except he can. The one time you fight just him, he's just flailing wildly with his swords, and that's all he's doing. Even that could be argued to not be him be original. He could just be borrowing the sword technique from you. It's like, okay, he's got swords. I'll get two swords. Yeah, I'll be much stronger than you. Uh, yeah, I've got two of what you got. What are you going to do now, buddy? <laughs> I love it. Um, this is a good time to talk about the fused shadow. The fused shadow link. Um, the fused shadow... Uh, it's been argued what it is. I mean, it literally turns uh, Midna into basically an, an eldritch abomination that crashes its way through there and fights Ganon and all that. I think it's an amplifier. If you look at what it's done uh, in, in the, like, the five instances we see it do something, each time it feels like it's taking what's already there and magnifying it. Uh, magnifying Midna's innate, innate magical powers, turning Darbus's rage into a literal fire and increasing his size and strength, you know, things like that. I think that's what the Fused Shadow was designed to do. Which would also make sense because, remember, these were advanced people who were already magically powerful, 
who were already pretty full of themselves, who decided, yeah, we're going to go ahead and take the Triforce too. Blinded by greed they were. Uh, wait, um, <clears throat> so, yeah, um, I actually don't have much else to say about that, but I do have a question. How did they seal away these people? The spirits of light are not that strong. And these people were sealed away, and the spirits of light mentioned they did it, but I don't think they did it alone. So how did they seal away people this powerful with this much power and technology at their, at their disposal? How do they do that? Well, we, there's a strong theory going around, and I've decided after a lot of thought that I adhere to it as well. The interloper war is what is referred to as when the interlopers, a.k.a. the Twilight Tribe, went forth to take the Triforce, failed, and were tossed into the Twilight Realm. A lot of blood was shed during that war. There's another war that's basically referred to as the Era of Chaos in Hyrule history. This was, uh, I forget where it had, is exactly, but it's, it's like back in the Minish Cap era. It's like before Ocarina, after Skyward, when uh, people all tried to kill each other and there was this big thing. A lot of people were trying to reach the Triforce and Rauru ended up making the Temple of Time to seal it off with those three gems, right? The events of these two wars line up basically perfectly. Uh, the only thing is that's, that the Interloper War has some things that the uh, Era of Chaos doesn't have and vice versa. But if you line them up together, they pretty much do, well, they fit like this. So it is my opinion and the opinion of other theorycraft as well that these are the same event. The Interloper War, the Era of Chaos are the one and the same. So in other words, I postulate that Rauru and his efforts were responsible for sealing away the Triforce and ensuring nobody can reach it, while the Light Spirits and whatever else was involved in that war, and God knows there was probably something else involved, were responsible for actually banishing the interlopers themselves. It is within the realm of possibility that someone actually used the Triforce to do that. The Lord knows that you know, just about anybody could use the Triforce as long as they could reach it, and we know at least two people in that era who had access to the Triforce, so... Uh, I want to talk about Ganondorf's death before I talk about the rest of him. I know that's a weird thing, but bear with me. We still don't know exactly what happened with Ganondorf's death, and I've heard dozens of interpretations. And after rewatching it with analysis mode on full, I still don't have a concrete answer of what happens. For whatever reason, the Triforce of Power abandons Ganondorf. It's what's been keeping him alive this whole time. It's what made him endure the execution. It's what has enabled him to do so much of what he's done. And then we see Zant breaking his own neck, and then Ganondorf dies. None of that really coheses. None of that really makes sense. Why would power abandon someone? We have never seen a Triforce piece just abandon someone up front like that in, in any of the games ever. We have also no reason whatsoever to, to think of why Zant would be involved in his death, since, as I want to remind you, Zant had no power except by the Triforce of Power, which just left him. So, I got nothing. I'd love to hear your thoughts, because I got nothing. <laughs> but I wanted to get that out of the way, because so nobody thinks I'm forgetting it. Which, of course, now we have to talk about Ganondorf. So, I love Ganondorf's presentation in this one. This is the Ganondorf who lost. Now... First, I want to talk about the fight, because the fight is brilliant. You, uh, you know, he's like, ah, I will take over Zelda, and I will do this, and then I'll be a giant beast! And then, oh, well, okay, now you've defeated the beast, so I'll get on horseback, yes. Oh, now on horseback? Okay, I'll fight you one-to-one. -one. 
you are worth my time to actually try for. And I like that. I like the fact that Ganondorf gets more serious as the fight goes on. It's something I've always felt Sephiroth did as well, and other very powerful, very skilled people in fiction I get across very well. That It's, it's the reverse one-winged angel, uh, ironically. They get more and more down to themselves, more precise, more refined, more disciplined, the more they feel like they have to actually try to defeat you. Uh, which is the inverse of the one-winged angel, which is they stop trying and they just let, let their power destroy them in an effort to destroy you as well. So I really like that presentation. Um, and it's just great. But it also kind of showcases Ganondorf's mentality. He's not stupid, but he, this is the Ganondorf who didn't learn anything, like Wind Waker Ganondorf did. This is the Ganondorf who came out here with no plan. Really, he has no plan. He has no big long-term scheme. He's barely even trying to conquer the world. He is out for petty revenge. And that's it. He's here just because screw you. For hate's sake, I spit my last breath at thee. Or, if his chest had been a hard-shelled cannon, he would have shot his heart upon it. Which I know is a misquoting, but whatever. He is just here because screw you. Even when you go into the room, the throne room, he has actually defaced the statues of the goddesses just out of spite. But that's not logical, because this man was poisoned by the events that happened during uh, the events of Ocarina of Time, or rather, the events we never saw in Ocarina of Time, which, of course, finally leads me back to this first page and my first thoughts. See, regardless of my theories, what happened to Ganondorf is clear. It's easy for you to understand. Let me, let me try and explain this. So let's say you have something you care about, and you, you put time and effort and thought and work and... You reach out for it. It doesn't have to be something evil, just whatever, you know. And you make an effort for it. It's a project, or it's a book, or it's something you're doing at work, or whatever, and you fail. You fail. And you're like, okay, not a big deal. Not a big deal. I'm going to try again. Uh, I'm going to try again. I'm going to try harder. And before you can even get any farther, bam, you fail again hard. You are shut down, and you lost. The difference between that and a loss earned is the concept of humility. Wind Waker Ganondorf went through all of this time and practice and effort and won and built his empire and then lost it all. But then he built up again and then he lost it all. That gave him time to reflect, to consider, to adapt, to understand, and to move on from it a little bit. Of course, that was his biggest flaw, but you get my point, to, 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 to learn from the past. This Ganondorf was never given the chance to learn. He was like, I will reach out for power. No! Huh? And he was shut down immediately. The game phrases things in a weird way that we can interpret when his execution was attempted. I don't think it happened initially, though. I don't think they were like, Ganondorf, stop that. We'll execute you. In the interest of arguing the side I don't agree with, it makes sense. Because remember, as I already said, there's a lot of evidence that Ganondorf was either involved in or directly the opposition in the Great War that happened right before Ocarina of Time. Ergo, him... You know, he swore fealty and, and surrendered, basically. He was a, a conquered power who lost on the losing side and surrendered to Hyrule. Then Hyrule finds out he's plotting something? Execute him. That makes perfect sense. I don't think that's true, though. I think they did something worse. And he did something worse. And that led to everything bad. Uh, I want to talk about a couple things before we really get into that. Um, except I already kind of talked about that, didn't I? already talked about the geography thing and moving the, the, the castle, or excuse me, the, the Temple of Time. 
I already mentioned uh, the significance of the light spirits. I do like the fact that this entire world feels rotten. I've been emphasizing this this whole time, too. All of Twilight just feels like a, an apple that's, that's half gone, half rotted away. Uh, again, an entire province's uh, tribute to the, to the kingdom, which they are a vassal of, is a sword. That is significant, I, I still permit. And each of these, these places are emphasized, again, this is the SNES RPG thing, to be a vassal state of the great kingdom of Hyrule. But we see the kingdom of Hyrule is not great at all. Queen Zelda was inheriting a broken kingdom with a terrible military and a lackluster economy and no real resources that they could tap. The only thing that was keeping that kingdom going was access to their provinces, which they had some kind of control over. The farmland and food and, 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 and the, the, the livestock and produce that's produced down in Ordona. The metal and ore, and, and you get where I'm going. I, I'm not going to go into it, but the point being, they are being sustained by their provinces. They're the frickin' British Empire back in, you know, when. Nothing going for themselves, right? And yet they're just continuing to fall apart. Now this is significant, because I think they've been falling apart since the King of Hyrule tried to get the Triforce. Yes, I'm finally getting to it. I'm sorry. I, I, I love saving this for life. I hope I at least got a reaction out of you. It would really make my it would make me happy if I got a reaction out of you. I think what happened is after a crown of time, remember child timeline. So Link goes and is like, "Hey," and Ganondorf's like, "Oh, I've lost." I'm like, "All right, Ganondorf, enough is enough. We're gonna make this work," and began an expansionist period. The you know, first of all, they needed all these men and all these materials and all these resources to grant these grand projects, great Roman-style architectural projects. They'd build this great arbiter's ground out of the Spirit Temple as an insult and as a way to control the Gerudo people. They turn the Spirit Temple, which, as I postulated, was actually the original home, headquarters of the Gerudo, into a prison which is a huge insult, especially if that place has any religious or cultural or historical significance to the Gerudo, which it probably has at least one of those. But no, we're going to keep all these horrible, depraved creatures in here, and we'll just leave them in their rot, and we will sentence any judgment on anybody who dares speak against the great Hyrule Kingdom. This will be a symbol of the great Hyrule Kingdom, and we will take all these things, we will move all of this, you know, the, the temple of time down here, it'll be locked away. We'll have our finest artisans craft together the greatest traps and the greatest things. We will use the tools of our great allies, who we haven't talked to in a while for some reason, but whatever. We'll, we'll use this great tool of the Dominion Rod to control these massive war machines. And you know, that's a great idea. Massive war machines. Keep that, keep that in mind. You know what I really need? I mean, I, I really, really need, I, I need more power. And so the king of Hyrule goes for the Triforce. Whether he succeeds at getting or not is irrelevant. Uh, I could actually build a whole game out of this. I really could. A, basically a sequel to Majora's Mask, as weird as that sounds, um, where you play as that Link, the hero of time, fighting against the king of Hyrule alongside uh, Ganondorf at first, because you know he's the enemy of my enemy, a very simple situation. And look at a lot of the evidence of this place. This place, this world is just kind of wrecked. Why is this kingdom in ruin? Why is the Gerudo Desert a wasteland of lifelessness? Why is there this massive fortress and manor way up in the snow peaks? For no reason. It's just up there. Completely abandoned. There are hints everywhere that there was a great war 
a massive, what I would call in Hyrule terms, a world war that happened, much worse than the one before Ocarina. That they unleashed the demon sword in order to fight for them. They unleashed these terrible golems built from the creatures, built from the technology they, they gleaned or took from the Skyloftians. It would explain several things, not the least of which, for example, I mentioned the Kokiri thing. Well, I don't actually think those puppets are Kokiri. I think the Kokiri are dead. I think a lot of things died in that war, and it explains the absence of many of the things that should be here. There are things that survived into Wind Waker that did not survive into Twilight Princess, despite the apparent absence of a freaking apocalypse. Because the apocalypse was much worse in this one. The flood, the great flood over in Wind Waker, that was, that was warned. They knew it was coming, and they were prepped for it, and the people were sent up to the mountains, and some people survived, and some people were mutated, and blah, blah, blah. There was no plan for the Great War, the Great Devastation. I actually wrote it down right there. I call it the Great Devastation. Uh, is the name of I call this war. That just blasted the land, wiped out the Gerudo for all intents and purposes, wiped out the Kokiri, just destroyed everything. And it makes everything fit into place. Because then it makes so much sense why Link hasn't been able to rest easy all this time. Because he has been waiting for this to come back and bite them in the ass. And he needs to pass on his skills to know that there's a new hero to take up the mantle. Whether of his bloodline, which is possible, or someone who just embodies the courage that he believed in. Whether he had the Triforce or not. Oh, by the way, uh, I actually kind of lied. I'm sorry. The reason I mentioned, I mentioned earlier that it doesn't matter if the King of Hyrule reached the Triforce or not, uh, that is wrong. He needs to have reached the Triforce for my theory to be correct, because that's how the Triforce gets split up into this timeline. Remember, if you pick up the Triforce, and you do not have a strong mind of all three points, psh, get split up into three people that embody those points. And mysteriously, lo and behold, Ganondorf just has the Triforce of Power. Now, we don't know where wisdom or courage ended up, but again, considering the hero of time was probably alive in this point of time, one way or the other, pretty good guess as to where that piece went. As to where wisdom went, I imagine that would go to Zelda herself, which actually makes a degree of sense, since we know her bloodline continues, despite her father. This also helps to explain why Ganondorf does something worthy of death. Because he didn't just lose. He lost and then he was spit on. His people have been literally devastated to the point where they are having trouble maintaining their population. His homeland is gone. His sacred temple, where he was raised, where his people have venerated for generations, is a prison for demons and beasts and the dead. Ergo, Ganondorf was pushed by the King of Hyrule to do something much, much worse than attempt to subvert the kingdom. And that is what led to his execution. I think Ganondorf killed the King of Hyrule. Murdered him, flat out. And then the sages, who again are still around at this point, uh, do their duty and go ahead and sentence him. And that's when the Triforce of Power, which was shattered into his hand, manifests, allowing the events of Twilight Princess to come to pass. Again, I would love to play that game. <laughs> Especially if we actually could like fight against uh, the King of Hyrule alongside Ganondorf in that last battle. That would be awesome. Anyways, that's all I got, guys. Uh, next week, I'll be talking about a game I have never played before. I'm very, very excited about this. Uh, Link Between Worlds. I hope you'll join me for my thoughts on this game, because eh, uh, regardless, I'll see you guys next time.